Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh, and joining me today is Johnny. Hello. Chris. Hey, y'all. And returning guest, the illustrious fan editor extraordinaire, Hal9000. Welcome back to the podcast, Hal. Hello, boyos. Today, we are talking about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, the first of the prequel films from 1999, uh, the fourth Star Wars film ever made. Yeah, these movie episodes are kind of daunting. I just want to give myself permission here at the top. This is not the definitive word on this movie. I'm sure while we're going to say a whole lot of stuff about it, there is always more that can be said. I mean, that's, again, mostly for me, because every time we do one of these movie podcasts, I'm like, oh, I didn't even mention the thing. Ah, so this is not a definitive document, is my point. Um, I want to start out because now we're entering the phase of Star Wars where we were there for the first run. So we have some personal experiences of when these things came into the world and they weren't just received you know, myths that looms larger than life pre-existing in the world. So I'm just curious what your relationship is with the movie, what your memories are of seeing it for the first time. Hal, if you don't mind, could we start with you? What was the first time you saw Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace? Yeah, Phantom Menace was my introduction to Star Wars. I remember seeing it in the theater. I was nine years old. I was the same age as Anakin Skywalker. I didn't really grasp the intricacies of the plot, but there was an enormous marketing push like the world had never seen, certainly like I had never seen. And so that made it lots of fun. There were, there were lots of just colorful characters, things to collect and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Phantom Menace was the first Star Wars movie for me. And I think all the fun, exciting parts about it really landed for me. There were a lot of the, you know, kind of the Coruscant part of the movie that, uh, just went right over my head and didn't really get, but there was plenty of uh, ancillary material to keep me plenty entertained for, you know, summer of 99. Well, that's fascinating. I actually, I think I knew that actually now that I'm recalling our last conversation, but I'm sure all three of us have a bunch of questions for you. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit younger than I, I think at least you, not the other yeah, two. Yeah. Before we get to that, John, uh, what are your memories of The Phantom Menace? Uh, like Hal, I remember the big marketing push. I was 16, 90. Yeah, I was, I was still 16. And, uh, we took the day off from school. My grandma took me and a bunch of my friends and a bunch of our parents got together and brought all of us to the movie theater. My, uh, girlfriend at the time and everything. Uh, some of us had some lightsabers with us. We saw the first showing we could, which was like 10 something in the morning. It was kind of rainy and like. I remember the trailer for it at the time was like one of the best trailers I've ever seen. And having grown up only watched Star Wars on VHS, too young to see, like I was like barely a year old when, Re when Return of the Jedi came out, so I couldn't see that. And then I saw the special editions when they came out because um, I had to. And then with this one, it was like, I, I remember a lot about that day. And I remember it being completely... Uh, psyched out of my mind when i was watching the movie so like i couldn't quite like absorb um i couldn't quite absorb uh i, I guess like a objective sort of whatever view of the movie because i was just so excited to be seeing star wars so i just remember leaving the theater being really high on star wars and i think i saw it in the movie's theater with like at least three or so times, like when it was out. So 
I actually have really fond memories of seeing Phantom Menace. And watching it again today, it kind of brought back a lot of those memories. No, yeah, I think a recurring theme, at least for me, that I'm going to be returning to is that it's very difficult for me to be objective about this movie. Like, I can be objective about this movie, but there are parts of me that don't really want to be. Yeah. You know, and then when you realize that it's like it's like kind of up to you, actually, what you think about it. And when it comes to movies, you have no obligation to be objective. So when you Mm -hmm. realize that you kind of get to decide whether you like something or not, regardless of its quote unquote flaws, that's actually kind of freeing. I'm not necessarily tipping my hand here uh, because my feelings about this movie are quite complicated. But Chris, what are your memories and associations of seeing Star Wars Episode One? I feel a little badly uh, sharing these just because I feel like I'm poaching you, Josh, since we saw it together. Um, well, actually, that's not entirely true, but I don't want to tip that. So my first experience watching it, we had set up Josh, um, I think Dave, and there was a fourth with us, wasn't there? I don't remember who was there, honestly. Okay. I know it was you, me, and Dave. I was pretty sure there was a fourth, but I know that we went and we saw the midnight showing of Phantom Menace. And it was, it was something we really, really enjoyed. Wait, oh man, now, now I'll be honest. I, I, no, it, it, it wouldn't have been the midnight show, would it? It would have well, been earlier well, than so, that. So I don't remember exactly who was with us. We were online. We lined up for the midnight show. Okay. Because... We were just there super early because I remember it was daylight. Well, we were there super early because, you know, one of the things that some of our younger listeners may not remember, there were people lining up for like months beforehand around the country and there was all this craziness and there was like a live webcam where like you could watch the various lines and stuff so like so we weren't lining up months ahead of time but we lined up i think we went right to the theater after school so it was like late afternoon we were lining up for the midnight show that's right and i don't know if you remember this but one of the employees i guess saw us outside and it was just us yeah, it was just lining up this early and they were like, are you here for Star Wars? It's like eight hours. Like, what are you doing? And yes, it was a joy too, because, well, it was a joy because I remember my dad saying, my dad, dad and mom, they both said, because we were freshmen in high school. Yeah. And so uh, both my mom and my dad said, you don't need to be there that early. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. There will be a line. There will absolutely be a line. And they like, to their credit, they really didn't fight me much on this, even though they knew I was wrong and I was certain that I was right. Um, and we a hundred percent, we got there super early because I remembered it was daytime that we were lining up and I, we had lightsabers because the, the movie theater we went to go see, uh, go see it at was, uh, was in a plaza and there was like a pizza place right there. There was a, a Carvel ice cream right there. And so we really had everything we needed, including KB toys at the end of the plaza which I absolutely went to because we weren't going to lightsaber duel the entire time. I brought my Game Boy and I went and I brought, bought a Pokemon Red at KB <laughs> Toys, brought it back and alternated between lightsaber dueling in the plaza and, uh, and playing Pokemon Red. I remember that very, very distinctly. Wait, wait, but you're leaving out the best part, though. I'm, I'm, um, letting, you, I'm letting you share the best part. This is oh, my, my much a... specific experience. Yeah, go for it. Oh, oh okay. Well, so... you started. I feel like you should end that. I was filling in some color stuff on my own personal experience then. No, so the the um one of the employees sort of was incredulous that these four kids were lining up outside and he was like, you know, we're about to screen it for the employees right now. Do you guys just want to come in and see it? And we were like, That's amazing. 
do we? So, so Why would we say no? We, so yeah, so we got to see it a little bit early. I mean, I'll be a few hours early. So you can tell your parents, or maybe you did 25 years later, however long it was. That I'm it, sure that I told them. Off. When the movie was over, we, of course, we went outside and got back in line because we yep. had, we had There actually was a line at that point. Right. At that point, there was a line. Chris, do you want to tell the most embarrassing part? At least from my perspective. There was literally nothing embarrassing about this experience, Josh. I, <laughs> I no, I, I'm, well, I think I'm going to I'm going to take a guess at what you felt was embarrassing. And I think in the moment, maybe I think I was just I was I was riding too high on the end. Because here's the other thing that people I think need to know ahead of time. We absolutely bought tickets for 12 consecutive showings of this movie. y'all. Well, oh, my God. Well, so we knew going into this that we had gotten off of school. That's a we were showing. We got to see it early. And then we knew we were coming back first thing the next morning. And they had it because movie theaters were expecting those sales. So we were there first thing in the morning and we watched every showing just back to back to back to the point where like we, I mean, we knew the movie backwards, forwards, sideways by the time, but I also fell asleep during one of the shows. I think. Of course the, we did. Yeah. I think I, it, that's either the embarrassing thing or it is that when well, we no, 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 stop, 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 because that's the embarrassing thing. I don't know what this other embarrassing thing is that you're about to say. No, I got to share this now because I don't think I don't think you necessarily did it. No, you must have because there were only so many of us. But 100 percent, because we had seen the movie already, we still had our lightsabers and we absolutely did like they were dueling in front of the rest of the line. I remember like not at all being mortified by that. I think I would have been like just a year later. I was just, just at the right age to not be mortified. Yeah, we were just at that age where, like, we were... My yeah, my choreography looked really good. Like, I'm certain of it. It looks great. Like, it was impressive. So I was glad other people were there to witness it. it spoiler alert, if you can't tell from my voice since you can't see my face, it wasn't. Um, but <laughs> that, was, that was my... I also, because I feel like I've been going on and on here, and I'm going to throw it back to Josh, since Josh also, like, shared in that experience. But for me... Um, I loved it. I remember our friend Andrew did not see it, but he was in love with the Matrix at that time. And I insisted episode one was absolutely better than the Matrix. Oh, absolutely. God. I really, I just, I really enjoyed it. It hit for at that age for somebody who had not gotten new Star Wars for a really long time outside of reading the books. Um, for somebody who also hadn't really experienced it in theaters outside of, as you said, the special editions, John. Um, and even one of those I think I missed. Um, it was... It was just, it was magical in a lot of different ways. And I was meeting, and at that age, I was still enjoying seeing characters. Like, oh my God, 3PO, 3PO was part of this. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen it. There are going to be spoilers here. Um, but oh my God, like it turns out Anakin built 3PO. Like those things all landed for me at that age. And also, honestly, this is also before I was like much of a writer or anything either. So I didn't, I didn't see it as heavy handed. So it hit all the right spots for me. Um, I did. I love that movie and really, and still, uh, that score, that score, Duel of the Fates, absolute, yeah, duel, absolute yeah. magic. So, yeah, no, one thing I don't think that anyone can argue with or that anyone would argue with is the score for this movie is fantastic. I think John Williams, it's among the best work he's ever done. Uh, duel of the you, Fates. Yeah, I, no, I agree. You should, you can imagine my horror. I used to like blare Duel of the Fates in my bedroom with the window open. And my mother was very, very worried that people on the street might hear it and think I was listening to, <laughs> I think she called it demonic music. Uh, I was like, 
Well, so you know what's crazy? Like the Duel of the Fates music video was played on TRL on MTV was like voted number one. And like it was played on loop like a million times on MTV. Like like this movie and the marketing around it and the excitement was like the like this was maybe the most anticipated movie of all time. And I think I don't think. There will ever be another movie that is as anticipated as this movie. I still think it's the most. I think I think the world has also changed at this point. So it's really, like, no, but that's my point. Yeah, no, but that's yeah, my point. I agree. I think that's in stone. It's done. I don't ever think you're going to get a bigger movie than this. Uh, just really quick before we move on. Yes, I forget now how many showings of this movie we saw. But one of the reasons why it's very hard for me to be objective about this movie is because you know, growing up with the three Star Wars movies, the original trilogy, like we know those movies like the back of our hands. Like we knew the lines, we knew the sound effects. So the idea that there was a new Star Wars movie coming out, like really was like saying, hey, guys, uh, Moses just came down with another tablet and there's another commandment here. So I think what we were doing by sort of like marinating in the movie for the that entire day or however long it was mm -hmm. was like we wanted to i think get the rhythms of this movie down the same as the other ones like even now like when i was watching it like i remember where the cigarette burns were for the real changes it's like you know like i remember like when the reels changed because we saw it so many times um, for any of our listeners who don't know what that is, movies used to be screened on five or six physical reels of film and they would have to switch reels to keep the movie going. And there was um, like a little circle that would appear on the screen to cue the projector to switch over to the other projector. And that's what that signifies, which actually reminds me, actually, the trailers for this movie that played with this movie were for Fight Club, for Titan AE and for Mystery Men. And those uh -huh. memorized too. Tempted to ask you to recite one of those. I, you, to just I probably could. Yeah. Wow. A whole, a whole flood of, a whole flood of memories are coming in. But um, I want to ask you guys. I could be crass and I could ask you if this is, if you think this is a good movie or a bad movie. But I'm not going to ask that because I don't. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on. Because Josh, I also, you have not yet shared your first viewing of the movie. No, I did. No, you didn't. I that did. Was... It was yours. You saw oh. it before I did. Oh, were you not there for when they let us see the... No, I was there for that. You saw it before then. I did? You did. You didn't, you didn't tell us because you didn't want us to be like... You, you, you wanted to be there for our, like our first time, too. I swear to God, I have no memory of what you're talking about. You saw it with Jordan. How did we see it? I, I don't remember. I just remember this was something that we had discussed because we had a big debate. You and Jordan were on one side. Dave and I were on the other side. And the argument went that you can't kill somebody by stabbing them with a lightsaber because as long as you didn't have anything vital, it would oh, because it would everything on oh. the way out. And you and Jordan were insisting. And Dave and I were like, no, this is, quote, the science of it. And you all were very, very For confident. And the reason you were confident was because you knew how Qui-Gon died. This is ringing a bell. This, this was very, very specific. Now, I remember, Josh, you and Jordan went to a a Star Wars weekend, a Star Wars thing, which I think you talked about on yeah, another episode. But, no, but they didn't show it at Star Wars Celebration. Okay, then yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure when you, yeah. I just know that you like, you were both very secure in that argument and Dave and I kept insisting otherwise and you were like, you couldn't be swayed. And then we saw the movie and you were like, you guys were both like, yeah, that's how Qui-Gon dies and that's how we knew that like a are stab was sure, like, are you sure that 
wow, okay, how how did this? I don't is know. I don't want to. I, I don't want to means No, what this means is that I literally don't remember the first time I saw this movie. All right, I'm gonna have to make some phone calls after this. But um, okay. Anyway, um, so is this a good movie or a bad movie? I'm not gonna ask that question because I don't even think I can answer that. But I'm curious now. So it's 24 years later. God damn. Yeah, sorry guys. Yeah, I'm right there with you, John. I, I four years hurt. later, it literally pained me. Um, what are your feelings about this movie? I'm not going to ask you if you think it's a good movie or a bad movie because, as we've established, it's it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Hal, I want to ask you because obviously you've done a very very good fan edit. I want to say that your fan edits are my go to versions of these movies whenever I have a hankering to the point where. When I sat down to watch the theatrical cut to prepare for this, it threw me a little bit because I'm so used to the rhythms of your cuts that I was like, oh, yeah, the scene does keep going. Oh, yeah. Or like, oh, yeah, this scene. I forgot this scene. Interesting yeah. to hear you say that. When I rewatched it to prepare for this, it, I found it a little bit refreshing because it's just the pure uncut up, you know, just the way it was. I didn't have to worry about anything in my head. You know, so I love what you just said, recounting your memory of it, how it was your first Star Wars movie and you mm-hmm. just ate it up with a spoon. But at some point you realized that there were things in it that maybe warranted a little finessing. So I'm curious, especially with you, when you think about this movie, is it a good movie? Is it a bad movie? Like, what's uh-huh. your like feeling it's, about it's it? It's a very now? it's very nostalgic, I think, is the the biggest thing about it. It's It's interesting, especially when juxtaposed with seven eight and nine you go back to one and it's just kind of um you know just a refreshing bit of contrast you know those sequel movies seem to be kind of averse to taking any time to get into the politics of it and uh i think watching phantom menace as an adult especially after the last several years of just political turbulence in the united states anyway you really kind of appreciate the political messages and just the the intrigue in phantom menace i don't know it kind of elevated the pretty straightforward simple story politically anyway of the just the state of affairs in the original trilogy and so I, I i really appreciate it for that anyway yeah overall it felt nostalgic it felt like kind of a a link to a little bit older hollywood kind of production for example when they go to the underwater city you know otagunga you see several establishing shots from the outside they go inside you see a few establishing shots the camera pans a little bit it doesn't really go into an explore. Like, it's not like they had the whole thing mapped out, rendered. It's like, we did all this work so we could have a few shots. And that just, I don't know, something about that just feels a little bit old-fashioned or just old-fashioned in the in the style and sensibility about how it's all put together that I, uh, I appreciated this time watching through it. Well, that is super interesting because obviously this movie at the time and even, you know, viewing it through an historical lens, like really represents sort of a change in the way. I feel episode one has a lot more of what I'm talking about, what I have in mind when I say that than two and three. Um, Maybe it's just because it's shot on film and and things like that but it maybe it's just that the effects just simply cohere by virtue of that but i feel like episode one it's like just like a sound of music singing in the rain like you know just big production like we're, we're trying so hard to make the audience happy and engaged and and, and do something i don't know it just has a sense of freshness that I, don't know, I just don't feel two and three have can i ask really quickly just how i'm curious uh-huh. do you ever because of your experience with it because of Yes, the nostalgia and and it being your first Star Wars movie, your introduction to the, the universe. Do you ever, whether then, now, whatever, do you ever find yourself like 
defensive of the movie when met with when it met with criticism or is that not something that ever bothered you or i'm just curious because i i did i found myself fiercely defensive of it for a while but i'm curious with the attachment the 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 different attachment that you had uh based on your age and your experience did you ever have that experience or or not really that was not your i mean i wish i had a more answer to give you than not really that's valid well i was just curious no i mean it's divisive i feel like if if somebody is you know with with humor and with style poking it in the face i can appreciate that if someone's praising it for its artistic achievement then i'd appreciate that well, you know, what's interesting how, because like hearing you were nine years old when this movie came out and there's your first Star Wars movie, like you were the target audience, like Bullseye, like you were the target audience for this movie. I think that even the three of us were like right on the edge of when we may have been much more cynical about it. Um, I feel like uh, with our age, we were, we were the guaranteed money and, uh, we weren't the target the audience. would have been like maybe pushing the, the lower end of that. Um, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of the movie that certainly would have gone over my head and did. But that doesn't, but I don't think that necessarily means you're not the target. Like, I know that, like, there were some films that I absolutely did not appreciate when I was younger, like, to their full extent. Mm -hmm. But I was definitely the target audience. It's just we sort of had to grow into them a little bit. Because I agree with what Johnny was saying. Like, we were were the guaranteed money. You're right. We were always going to buy tickets, whether we ended up liking it or not. You weren't necessarily the target. Yeah. Well, so because it's also interesting how like just because, you know, maybe some of the Senate stuff went over your head, that doesn't mean that the movie wasn't for you. I think that what a really good movie for kids does is it has a few things in there that younger kids have to reach for or it does go over your heads because even though you don't know exactly what they're talking about in the details, even though you aren't getting it 100 percent. You're reaching for it and you're getting the gist. It's like you get the gist that something important is happening. You get the gist of like what the characters are feeling and it has to do with this thing, even if you don't, if you couldn't explain exactly what it is. You know, it's weird. I'm being reminded of um, in the original Star Wars, and I may be conflating this with something else, but the studio wanted the aliens who were subtitled in the movie to say their lines in English so kids could understand them. Their argument was, is a movie for kids and kids don't know how to read, so they're not going to understand the subtitles. And George Lucas said, well, maybe this will encourage them to want to learn how to read. Nice. Right? Yeah, see, and that's, I was actually, I, I agree with that assessment. I think that when story, when we don't have to, especially as kids, when we don't have to work to understand a story, we drop it more easily than the stories we sort of have to puzzle through and, and concentrate on. This was this is a different medium, but my experience with like kids theater is that when the kids start talking to one another, they're trying to figure something out and they're trying to do it together. And so then they get, you know, they get to solve that sort of mystery on their own. They get to figure it out. And then of course, like puzzle solving is always a dopamine hit, like instant dopamine hit. Exactly. So if you don't have to, if, if you don't have to solve anything, it's everything is just presented to you. It's just, it's too easy. So I, I agree. I like that. I think that good storytellers make audiences, no matter what the age, reach a little bit. And like you said, you know, maybe this will encourage them to learn how to read, or maybe we need to watch it again and talk through it with our friends to figure out what it really means. I find that hard to argue with. I mean, that certainly was my experience in the end as a kid and taking in the movie and having time to digest it. Uh, it's kind of funny because I uh, haven't seen the movie, I don't know how many times now at the age of 40, I was watching it again today. And, um, I forgot that like, even late in the movie, they're like, so you're going to sign this treaty, right? 
And I was like, has that always been a central plot point that she just needs to sign a piece of paper? And like, I just totally what? overlooked that. Like, I just like, because it gets kind of lost in the shuffle of everything. But I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. The big bad evil wizard is like, sign this paper. And this is like, and I'm like, that's kind of absurd of a plot yeah. point. But like, but that's, paper well, I didn't realize that like, even late into the movie, they're still talking about signing a piece of paper. And yeah, I was like, well, yeah, well, the Emperor throughout the original trilogy had some, you know, there's a legal, everything he's doing is technically, you know, yep. legal and all that. Legal, yeah, which is the whole, the whole point exactly, of it. Which is, it has to be legal. Was, he has to make it legal, you know? I mean, that's kind of the, the story of the prequel trilogy writ small, like at least in terms of how the Republic becomes the Empire. Like everything that Palpatine does, everything is quote unquote legal. And voted right. upon and supported by the public. Yeah, yeah. So getting into the movie a little bit here, you know, starting with the opening crawl, which, you know, over the years has gotten a fair amount of shit, it seems to me. It's like they're talking about taxes and trade routes. And I will I will admit that um, maybe some wording could have made it a little more digestible. But really what it's saying is a very provocative idea. The corporations are running the galaxy and... When this greedy corporation is trying to push this sovereign planet around because they don't feel like they're making enough money or that their taxes are too high, the planet goes to the government for help and says, please help us. These people are invading us. And that government is completely impotent, does nothing. Yeah, because uh, they're getting they have lobbyists in their ears and they even pointed out he's like. He's like, that's where the lobbyist comes in and speaks and says to his ear. And then I think he says after that, he's like, well, we'll put this to a committee. And it's we'll decide. And this is like actually happening. That's what it is. He he says, well, we'll we'll put it we'll put it to to um, a commission to investigate your claims. Exactly. Yeah. Investigate your claims. And, you know, Which they're going to come back and say your, your claims and... cannot, you know, be Sorry. validated or whatever. And it's just it's just like them like spinning wheels and spinning wheels. It's like by the time they find out, it's going to be destroyed. Too late. But I mean, you know, you were right, so you it, that'll yeah. go down as being, yeah. Right. Well, at that point, everyone's there's two thousand credits and reparations, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah something exactly. that really went over my head that um you know I didn't really realize how kind of radical it is until a couple of years ago. The idea that the trade federation this. This corporation has representation in the Senate. They have their own senators. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, so yeah. it would be like if District of Walmart or whatever. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's exactly, exactly what it would be like. That's exactly what it would be like. And I mean, I'm going to try to get ahead of the jokes. I mean, I mean, you know, arguably you could say that, like, you know, Walmart has a senator, there. and so. <laughs> but to be so like naked and explicit about it, that mm -hmm. like you literally deserve as much representation as this planet of citizens. Well, right. um, yeah. it's like a profit making enterprise like that is crazy. It's different than because like you could draw, try and draw a parallel to the way that Disney World had in, you know, down in Florida. They had their own jurisdiction until very recently. Right. They had their own jurisdiction so they could make their own. They made their own laws in that space and they controlled that. And that obviously has changed. But even then, like it's not something they flaunted. Right. It's something they may have used as leverage, but they didn't flaunt it the way that, like you said, this is all out in the open. The Trade Federation has, has representation and has an equal voice to planets and people. Yeah. Corporations um, are people, my friend. That's a very provocative idea. I think the movie doesn't make it clear enough 
or maybe it's just because I'm so used to the lens that I saw well, it with when I was 14 years old. But I do think that the politics of this movie are kind of muddled. I don't think it's, they are. it's completely clear. Having just said, like, I've seen the movie, I don't know, like dozens of times and I'm 40 years old and I had it on VHS and I saw it three times in the theater and all these things. And I'm watching the movie now and I'm like, I always knew it was about this stuff, but I was like, really, just having gotten so used to all the spectacle and the adventure of the movie, that I know. But like listening to just the politics this time, I was like, there's a lot of things I'm picking up on on this mm-hmm. viewing that like just, just kind of like fell flat for me or was like lost because they'll say something like that. And before you could think too much about it, they kind of go back into the Misa Jar Jar Binks thing. So it's just being like, it's it's like, it's different modes of um, thinking and consuming. And I think that's one thing that um, this movie, I think of all the Star Wars movie, this is the movie that has like, it's like four different movies in one. And it's just like, and, and the tones are kind of all over the place. And um, so I think because the tones keep shifting, we keep, I'm changing the way I'm focusing on the movie, if that makes any sense, you know? Certainly. That's kind of one of the criticisms of it, to be fair. Yeah, it's like if they're going into so much detail about the politics, but they're not going into that much detail about all the other things. So it's like, what am I supposed to pay attention to? What am I not supposed to pay attention to? As a film, it was a behind the scenes clip with like Ben Burt, where he's like, well, you have the death of the master here, and then you have much the comedy here, and then you have this there. And like, it's just like, I don't know what I'm supposed and, to. And the pieces are all put together too intricately. You can't you can't take it back apart, but you can diminish the effects of what. Yeah. Or whatever. And so I feel like from start to finish, the whole movie's kind of like that. It's just mm-hmm. like, wait, what's going on? Oh, this is happening. Okay, well, like, oh, what? What? Uh, I've got a bit of a question for all three of you, actually, on that note, because like it sounds like we're so, all sort of talking around the same thing here. But I'm curious now. Like you said, Johnny, forty years, you know, forty years later, you're well, when you're forty, you're looking at it yeah. going like. Oh my God, I didn't notice these things before. I'm curious, does it feel messier looking back on it now and it made more sense then? Or was it that just that you didn't think about it? Or like, like how do you feel about it then versus I, now? In terms I, of like- well, okay. So overall thoughts of the movie is that even back when I was 16, the more I watched it, the more I was picking up on things that were kind of like, wait a second. <laughs> and like, because, uh, and, uh, and so I think... I think back then I had the same feeling as I can have kind of like as objectively as possible as I do now. It's just that now, because I know the other things, I can just ignore that and just concentrate on the politics. And since I'm concentrating on the politics, because yeah. back then it's like fucking lightsabers, let's go. And now it's like, now that, I, now that I'm taking all that for granted, I'm like, just concentrate on the politics. It's like, oh, now I know exactly what this movie is saying and what it's trying to do. And it's there. It's not that it's missing the info. The info is there, but I don't know necessarily if it lands because of everything that's around it. You know, it's, it's built in a way where you can keep getting things out of it as you as you keep going back. Yeah, like it wasn't just an analog and uh, political allegory about whatever you know contemporary events or anything. It's 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 true enough that you know, can keep seeing new things in it. And it's, and it's, it's also true that like in, 1990, in 1997, when they shot it, 99, it came out and now it's 2023 and we still have the same problems that they talk about in government. Like it is a universal thing, but they have that little West Wing nugget of wisdom, this West Wing episode in like mm-hmm. a Ren and Stimpy cartoon 
in a G.I. Joe cartoon in a Battlestar Galactica episode. And so it's just like there's a lot of layers that like have nothing to do with it that you have to kind of like peek past to get that, if that makes any sense. Well, you know, Chris, to answer your question, I would say that this was something that I felt at the time, even as a 14, 15 year old, you know, like the fart jokes. Yeah. Jar Jar steps in shit. And like the tonal whiplash was like very extreme. And I don't think it's helped by the amount of computer generated imagery that kind of gives it this like cartoonier feel. You know, and you could argue this point. I heard somebody who saw the original trilogy when they were originally in theaters and he derisively refers to Return of the Jedi as the Muppet movie. So, you know, so maybe this is something that's, you know, whatever age you're at. But I do think that there are some aspects of this movie that are intentionally childish or child friendly Mm -hmm. and some that I think are inadvertent. You know, for example, the Jar Jar character... I think the idea of an alien character that's paying homage to Buster Keaton and stuff and is doing a lot of physical comedy is not a bad idea necessarily. But like even as good as the CGI was, and I know that it was revolutionary, you know, when I was watching it, there are ways that Jar Jar moves that do look like a cartoon Mm -hmm. at certain points. I think when you have the fart jokes and the poop joke sitting alongside details of like tax policy and stuff like that, you need a deft hand to, you know, ride that line and thread that needle to kind of make it all feel like it's of a piece, you know? Uh, But that said, one of the things that I appreciate about this movie kind of is how ballsy it is. Like, it's not something you would see from a Star Wars movie now, I don't think. It it definitely yeah. doesn't play it safe in that regard. To pick up on the politics a little bit more, you know, it, it, it's got a real kind of, it's got a cynical outlook that doesn't get resolved neatly and, you know, kind of ends in tragedy by the time the, I was going to say the trilogy's over, even though just the movie's over, really. Totally. Yeah. And it, it's hard to imagine that coming from anywhere other than kind of a, you know, indie filmmaker like George Lucas rather than, you know, a studio is not going to like write and produce that script with just that kind of outlook. Well, and I, I really struggled with what you're talking about this, this, I watched it last night and I was, I was talking to Johnny about this before the podcast. The last time I had seen the movie before last night was probably pre pandemic. It was just before or just at the beginning of the pandemic, because I was, I was playtesting Star Wars Armada and they were going to be dropping the ships from the prequels. And I didn't remember enough. So I'm like, I better go back and like you know, watch for like flavor and how does this feel and blah, blah, blah. Um, but the thing I'm really struggling with, or I really struggled with last night as I was watching it is like, I love the idea of the trade federation. Like looking back now, it's like all the money, all the power. I love the, it makes sense. They have all these droids. Like it all really worked for me Mm -hmm. so close when I look back on it, but the, but the bad general Asiatic impression that they do you've got the you've yeah. got the slit eyes you've got the bad accent like the general quote asian accent there's just there's a yellow peril thing that's happening and it's like oh y'all were so close like you literally could have changed the voice and everything else would have worked but instead you end up with this like very like the low cunning that you know these trade federation types are cowards says the white guy about the asian people who are interested in money and we'll confront them like there's a, like there's a layer there that I I genuinely 
sometimes this stuff is intentional. I genuinely don't think it is, but a voice was picked, an accent was picked for this race. And it's yeah. just, it, there are times where I'm like, am I projecting? And then they pronounce a certain thing and I go, no, that's an no, Asian accent. Keep yeah, wanting you're not, to give you're it a pass and it just won't let you. It really yeah. doesn't. So let's talk about this for a second, because this is an issue that does deserve to be addressed. It's not just the Trade Federation guys. It's also Watto, uh, Jar Jar yeah, wa and Watto. <laughs> Watto gets to like, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, holy, stereotype, holy. I don't know, three or four groups at once. It's just so vague. What's like, what's being said here? So here's what I think is going on here. It's certainly not intentionally racist, but what it is doing is an intentional homage to things that had racist, racist. Mm -hmm. that had racist depictions. Old school cereals and like Fu Manchu sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, like Fu Manchu stuff. And like, I don't think that there is any intentional racism, but when you import the tropes of something that's a product of another time and you fail to, you know, examine what maybe is behind some of those tropes and some of those yeah. things, you are also importing the racism, whether or not you're aware of that. So, so is it's that a problematic... just necessary? Well, may not necessary, but is that just kind of a part of it being, you know, from indie filmmaker like George Lucas rather than a big studio kind of a thing where that that probably would probably. have been more under the microscope i don't think it, it would have been at that at that time it was absolutely not more under the microscope because they weren't people weren't talking about it on a, on a large scale until later anyway so i think even I, the no, no. that's actually not true it was noticed when the movie came out though i remember that yeah like a lot of people there was a lot of talk about the racism in this movie and at the minstrel time i, okay. I, I missed that, that talk yeah. so i'm, I'm yeah. kind of glad that it was happening but yeah i was unaware that that was like that was happening at the time i think the, that was the, yeah from kind of in the immediate i remember just the you know earlier days of the internet you know force.net forums and things like in the early 2000s and, and certainly hearing about that plenty as a criticism of phantom menace especially that's fair. And yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, um, I think he just had like rose tinted goggles on with his own nostalgia to put those characters in. Sure. Sometimes people don't understand where the things they like come from, you know? Well, and, and he I didn't think... have the other viewpoints there either. So I'm right there with yeah. you. Charlie, like, it's not like he had other Asian actors and the one black actor he had, you wouldn't know he was other than other than Samuel L. Jackson as Mace Windu. You don't know he's black because he's Jar Jar Binks. He's an alien, right? So well, yeah, son of uh, uh, Captain uh, Tanaka as well. Oh, um, sorry, you're uh, right. Tanaka. You're right. Yeah. What's interesting about Jar Jar and the accent is, um, I believe Ahmed Best is also on record as saying that he doesn't find there to be any racism in the performance. Like, I think there are like levels of racism here. I mean, not for me to be the arbiter of that as like a white guy, though I am Jewish, so I suppose I could have something to say about the Watto depiction, even though he's also a caricature of Italians and Middle Eastern uh -huh. people in general. So, I mean, that I think is the defense. The defense is these are aliens. racist. <laughs> I'm not saying that it holds water. No, no, of yeah. course. It's like the goblins. It's like the Harry Potter goblins where it's like, yeah, yeah I, I know they're, they're mythological creatures. We also know what you're doing there. Yeah. No, and also, like, where does that myth come from, guy? I mean, JK, where does that where does that come from? Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think George Lucas took that to heart on some level, because obviously when um, Newt Gunray shows up in episode two, he has the same voice because it's the same character. But the next time we hear sort of the rank and file 
Neimoidians in uh, Revenge of the Sith, they speak with They're like a neutral American or English. Even American. in Attack of the Clones, there's a brief line from a different Neimoidian who I think was a character in episode one as well. He just has one line about getting the ships into space and it's a notably different voice. But I think... Huh. Oh, you could be right. I, th yeah. I think that... I think that example, though, come to think of it, I recall hearing somewhere that, like, it was just the person not being available who originally voiced him or something, so that might be reaching too far. But yeah, they, they just turned surfer dude in episode three. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but let's talk about the uh, the Gungans here and Jar Jar and, and Oto Gunga, that whole sequence that, um, you know, the underwater world. I like this idea that is all throughout the movie about, you know, symbiosis and how how everything is interconnected thematically. I really like that idea. Nice counterpoint to the political cynicism is just, you know, balance of nature and cooperating or whatever. Yes, exactly. And I like the idea of the Gungans and the Naboo are sort of these two civilizations who who call the same planet home, but sort of have antipathy for each other at best or outright hostility for them at worst over perceived miss over misperceived lights which i like like boss nass saying you don't think you're better than the gungans and she just doesn't answer and he's like oh okay but yeah. the lack of contact it was implied that you yeah. thought you were better than us mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that's cool i like that i don't know that the gungans work as well as maybe they were intended to. And I think it's for many, many reasons. But Hal, I'm curious, in your fan edit, correct me if I'm wrong, you cut out that entire sequence, the Oto Gunga sequence. Isn't that right? Right. Yeah. And I, I think um, even as a kid watching it on VHS, that little clock wipe, clock wipe transition to go from them arriving at Oto Gunga into like the little council chamber where they're meeting with Boss Nass. That was always the part of the movie as a kid. I remember getting bored. Like, you all get right. Bored. Yeah. It, and you know, it kind of dips there. Yeah. It, so, I mean, yeah, to answer your question, yes, my fan edit of the movie goes right from uh, them meeting up with Jar Jar to city being invaded and rescuing the queen from there. But you do lose, you know, kind of the setup for it doesn't mean quite as much when you get to uh, Boss Nass coming on board and the Gungans helping, you know, and all that. It, it, it still kind of pays off. This is why we met Jar Jar is to and we, we, you know, all thought he was a pathetic life form. And then, you know, it still works, I guess. But yeah, it, it, just, it just slows the pacing of the opening that needs to get going. And the movie just needs to coalesce around a plot. If you ask me anyway, that's why I did that. When I watched this movie, I had so many questions about like aesthetics and stuff like that and, di and direction choices, which I want to get into later. But one of the things I, I kind of see is like, I feel like it's almost like kind of like a first draft sort of thing where it's just like, it's almost like, you know, th this probably would have landed a lot better if he just did this one thing or if he just did that one thing. And there's even a precedent for something like this with like the story of like Dune where there's like locals who live in the desert who have nothing to do with the universe empire yeah the fremen becoming... yeah exactly and then so the gungans are basically like nabu fremen but and they live in the water but they're not they're just kind of like oh yeah we're underwater and it's like why aren't they talking to each other and like as the audience like they get so into the minutia of her signing a treaty but they don't get into the minutia of that which is like a huge part of the story and it's yeah, like, like, why don't they talk to each other why, why don't, they, don't they talk about that and it's like yeah. and why are they like like 
It's just like, I just feel like if he just had like another month of writing, like it's kind of like when we talk about the prequels in the 80s. Just, like, like, just got to get some shorthand in there of just, you know, like they, you just have to import that as a trope and just move on to the story, I guess. It's he's just like, out. here's what it is. It's not important, but I'm like, isn't it important? It's because <laughs> it's a means to an end. It's used yeah. as a means to an end. That's the problem. That's Mm. What's super interesting about that, though, John, is that this is not a first draft. There were several I know. drafts. I so know. It actually, it's the, weird. the earlier draft loses a lot of really interesting concepts. Like the queen is kind of racist toward the Gungan. She herself. She, by the she's way, like, what is this Gungan aboard I, the ship for? By the way, uh, slight observation over all of Star Wars. Everyone's racist against droids. But even in this movie. Like Obi Wan Kenobi's like, why do I think we have the impression we picked up another pathetic life form? It's like, dude, what is your fucking problem? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's no, like, I aren't you a Jedi up, knight? I picked up on this that too. Between him and Qui Gon, there's a lot of like dismissiveness. There's a lot of I don't have time for this. And like, yeah. I think there's the possibility of saying like, well, it shows that like how the Jedi have gotten to a point where they're just they're too full of themselves, and it's easy to see how they're blinded to the dark side. But I also think that's a giant stretch. Exactly. I was going to say, how much is that? Is a giant stretch or just like George Lucas being like, this is a joke. Isn't it funny? Instead of it just being right. like, well, what are you saying with that joke? If you really think about it, <laughs> you know, like, like that type of thing. And I feel like once you think about it and not think about that, you know? Yeah. Everything's delivered in such a way that it, if it's not very obvious, you're really going to have a hard time telling. Like, you know, uh, Chris, your comment about reading a lot of these things as, well, it, the Jedi are supposed to be flawed, and that's part of it. And it's like, I don't think that they were necessarily intended to be portrayed as being so flawed. I think that it was like, no, they were right overall in what they were doing. It wasn't like, right, you know, like like the, like the whole like, you know, attachments. Like, you know, that that I don't think that was supposed to be pitched yeah. as like, this is a bad thing. But that, that right. that's oftentimes used to defend things. No, I think you're right, Hal. I think it's used as a justification or a, an attempt at a, a attempt at being defensive of a thing. When I was younger, I, I hear some of these arguments that are being made and I could hear like, no, that's an argument I might have made when I was younger in defense of a thing I so closely identified with that like an attack on that, an attack no. on that, unquote, an attack Makes on sense. that. Aesthetic choice too, uh, in regards to acting, it's like... um. I understand if Jedi at, at their peak dogma, whatever, maybe can be less emotional. And so I could see them kind of acting in kind of like a reserve sort of matter. But why is everyone acting in a reserve matter? And why are some people not? So it's just like, it's like, why is like, eh. some people are like, oh, they're kind of emotive. And then a lot of other people are like, well, why is Anakin's mom acting reserved? And why is like, but Anakin's yeah, not acting reserved. If you're reading the novelization, it's fine. But, yeah, but you, it's just like but it's one of those things where it's like it's not like it's. I know these actors are good because they all come from good film and good theater, and they're in this movie, and you can tell it's a distinct thing. Like watching like a Wes Anderson movie, how they all kind of have this Wes Anderson. Yeah, it's just it's just direction. It's just George Lucas thing, but but make it hard to, to go from the original trilogy to this, it's like why the change? Like it's funny because if you watch like all the way through the Return of the Jedi, and then you watch this, you're like, why is everyone acting this it's way? It's not that big of a change from Return of the Jedi. Go, what, take take the scene where Luke and Vader are talking before they go up to the second Death Star. They're, you know, um, come with me, the, that scene. Uh, yeah. It's, 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 but Luke, Luke is calm because I can see he's getting into that sort of Zen sort of Jedi thing, but Leia and Han and Lando, they all, they all have like this, um, yeah. this, like these emotions and everyone else is like, 
You're, you're right about that. If if if, uh, if Natalie Portman and Ewan McGregor say, just to pick two actors from Phantom Menace specifically, since that's what we're talking yeah. about, if they were acting out for Phantom Menace, a scene just like the one between Luke and Leia where they, you know, reveal that they're siblings, uh, they you're wouldn't not going to get a lot of emotion such... out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, why are they, why are they acting this way? It's we, and like, it's, it's, it's to me, it's like, it was just a direction choice where it's like, he's trying to do something here, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was he was trying to do with that. Or choice. is that your read of it? Because that's just the way it's being pitched, but, but really behind the scenes, it's just, he just wasn't that great at directing the actors. I mean, just to be blunt. No, no. I mean, that's, that's valid. And I, but they I, were actually told to take it back a notch. I've heard some of the actors say in the interviews, like, no, like a little bit more, like, it's weird. You know, it, it's like, instead of faster, more intense, it's like, uh, not as fast, less intense. <laughs> you know, like, well, in the Vader thing in Jedi, what you're talking about, Hal, it's funny. I, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch it now, having talked to you about this, because the way I always perceived it was always in the context. And maybe I'm not, I'm just not able to extricate. And that, and that may just be the case. But I always saw it in the context of all three movies and seeing Vader mellow from New Hope into Return of the Jedi. There's a sort of acceptance there and there's a sort of like mellowness there that indicates that like, no, Luke is right. There's something there besides anger. And we're seeing it now while he's with Luke, um, yeah. which I which I found interesting. But now I want to go back and I want to rewatch and wonder if I'm just projecting <laughs> that or. I, I guess we'll have well, to see, but I, I sure imagine if you watch the scene with with it in the back of your mind of like, okay, imagine this as being in the prequels and you'd be like, eh, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go broad for a second. Two things you brought up, John. There's the acting, the performances, and the aesthetics in terms of the design and the visual style of the movie. Let's just talk about the acting first, the performances first. Mm -hmm. We know because we've seen a lot of these actors in many other things. Uh, They're fantastic. These are all very good actors. There is kind of a, um, I mean, I want to describe it accurately, but not be unkind. There is kind of a stylized quality, sort of a reserve quality. And before you said what well, you just said, that you've heard some of the actors say that they were told to bring it down a little bit. Like, you know, my, my read is you could argue that this movie so far of the four Star Wars movies is the most pure, uncut George Lucas that we've gotten so far. He yeah. um, he directed the original Star Wars, but under, you know, sort of very stressful circumstances and limitations. And there were other directors who directed Empire and Jedi and there were other, you know, sort of things going on. And, you know, this is the movie where he had full control for the first time, like he could. Yeah, big agree. Yeah. So my read of the performances was always I think there are certain things that are priorities or preoccupations of George Lucas's over other things. I think he wants the performances to be good, but I don't think he's as interested in crafting a performance, in refining a performance to the degree that someone like, say, Irvin Kirchner. I was just going to say Irvin Kirchner. Uh, was so my read was always okay he got the component like you know there's a very um there's a very interesting quote from rob coleman who's one of the visual effects supervisors in the attack of the clone special features where he says i've never seen a filmmaker work the way george works when we're shooting a scene with you and mcgregor as obi-wan kenobi 
he's getting the Obi-Wan element. And then the rest of the post-production process is getting all the elements and putting them all together to create this scene, this world that never existed before. Whereas more traditional filmmaking is like a lot of what happens on the day, like you get what you get. And that's sort of what it is. You know, you try to get as much magic as you can on the day. And that's where the movie is made is on the set where for George Lucas, it happens in the editing room. So I think what I'm trying to say is I think or I thought that it's not so much that he was choosing this style explicitly as it was, you know, he was getting them to where he needed them to be and no further. Yeah, like, I agree. You don't, I, I, you don't I think it's their minimum, but it's kind of just like just get it done. You have the element and then edit that the scene without actually seeing the uh, the back and forth that most acting is, which is like listen, respond react <laughs> mm-hmm. he's just like okay you, you, now you're angry okay okay and then whatever i think you're right josh and i think it also i think that you know, there is a style choice that is kind of older hollywood kind of a like just stuffy old black and white movie you know where i don't know it just is in a certain register as well so those two things put together i think gets you what we see that is true. Like, there definitely was an intention to make it, I think, a little more um, arch. Is that the word? It's it's a little more... I know what you're talking about. It's more formal and restrained. And I think that's supposed to go along with the um, the different moment that we are in the Star Wars universe. I think, you know, things are a little more refined. I think things are a little more, you know, restrained. I think that's kind of the idea. But that said, it still has to feel alive. It still has to work as a movie, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes maybe there's something that could have been there that had a little bit more spark of life. Well, if you talk about the characters, the characters are kind of like, uh, which one is Obi-Wan Kenobi? He's the younger Jedi Knight with the blue lightsaber. You know, uh, which one is Darth Maul? He's the guy with the red face paint and the double lightsaber. It's not like, He's the sarcastic one that's got a chip on his shoulder. That, 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 that. It's just like, it's just kind of like, who's Amidala? She's the queen of Naboo. Like, it's, it's, but like, who is Padme? Like, who, yeah, like, they don't really what is, have, like, like who is that person? And it's like, she's the queen yeah. of Naboo. Oh, okay. Like, that's, that's all you get, you know? Uh, Anakin, you know, he's the kid. No, yeah. <laughs> he does show a lot of emotion and compared to everybody else, you know? Um, yeah, no, that's true. The, the other, thing that I just want to touch on briefly is the visual style, the aesthetics. Again, I think a lot of it is kind of um, not that it's unintentional, but it's sort of it's sort of incidental. The fact that there's so much reliance on computer generated imagery when it was still a new tool. It's still it's mm-hmm. it's still the 1990s. It's only six years out from Jurassic Park. It's like, you know, not what it is now. And I do feel like, you know, it 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 kind of gives this movie this weird uncanny valley quality. Sometimes it gives it a cartoonish quality that I don't know serves it well. Well, I, let me jump in there to kind of uh, disagree with you a little bit. I mean, you know, I, as I was watching it last night, I, I felt that, that the effects really cohered pretty well, at, at least at least relative to, to two and three. And maybe, again, maybe that's because it was shot on film, but there were certainly, you know, the, the CG elements, you, know, you could tell, okay, if they were being generated today, they would be a higher resolution or there'd be more layers or be more complex or, or what have you. But I don't know, maybe that kind of thing just doesn't tend to bother me in general, but I, re- I felt like it, it, uh, it cohered 
you know, well, yeah, I kind of had an old I, Hollywood feel, like I said before. Yeah. Like you, you kind of like you know, oh, and the, you can kind of see how they're making the movie a little bit, but you kind of appreciate it for that rather than this has just been so thoroughly vetted with so many layers of everything like there might be today. I kind of admired it for it, I guess. It would work. I didn't have a problem with it. I watched it kind of like it's like looking at 1940s matte paintings a little bit where it's just like, to me, mm-hmm. like I, 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 this is coming from a guy that like is totally not into CGI as much as practical. But even watching all this today, I just like, it didn't really bother me. It's a good like, question. It's, 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 it's like, far it's, from all CGI. Like there's, it is. There's a lot of great, there's a lot of great, there's a lot of great things going on that's actually very practical. And, um, and some of the CGI I thought was kind of impressive, specifically like spaceships and stuff like that. But, but even when it came, became cartoony for me, I was just like, it didn't bother me. Like I just kind of saw it's like a dated movie that's like, well, that was what they had at the time. And then mm-hmm. I just kind of moved on from it, you know? A bit like a Golem in the Lord of the Rings movies where, you know, you're like, yeah. you know, yeah. That it, Back then it was great. It doesn't look photorealistic or anything, but it, it didn't at the time either. And it, and it, it works. I'm, I'm watching yeah. a movie. I'm, I'm, that's not what it's about. Exactly. I mean, you know. Exactly. Looking through the window. It doesn't see it doesn't hurt to see a few a little layer of uh, film or, or smudge or something to remind you that there's a window there because you're not looking at the window. I broadly agree with what both of you are saying. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if it were made now because the technology is better now that it would. Sure. I, w- I went off uh, so just purely reacting to what you were saying. Yeah. I won't yeah. hold you to any that. Oh, I won't hold you to the opposite of everything I was just saying. You know, what I'm saying is like something that I think Sort of the trademark style of the original trilogy is the fact that it felt real, that mm. it felt like a lived-in, used universe. That it lived-in was the phrase, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That it felt, you know, really tactile. Like it seemed like you couldn't quite explain why, but it really felt like this was a real place. It was dirty, and dinged I, up, had grease on the walls. You could just, like, yeah. you, you could see yeah, it, if, touch if, it. If you're aware of, you know, model making and rigs and all that kind of stuff as you are about CGI, I mean, I, I don't know. I'd push back a little bit on you there. I mean, you watch the original movies and especially the original versions of the original trilogy, you know, you, you see plenty of, okay, I see, I see how they're putting this together. And I, I just, you know, it was the same with Phantom Menace. No, and, well, eh. well, what I would argue is I'm not saying that the effects are invisible. My sort of working theory here, and I don't want to get too deeply into this. Tangible. Yeah, like the shorthand I've been using is like seeing the human fingerprints. Like there's something about even though it's not photorealistic, it's not quote unquote realistic. Mm-hmm. The AT-ATs in the Battle of Hoth and Empire Strikes Back, they don't look real, but they do look like they're tactile. And I think on a subconscious level, you know that they were manipulated and constructed by human hands. Mm-hmm. Going off that something just in the design choice that the technology allowed for, you have these like sleek, clean chrome designs, especially on Naboo. We're seeing sort of the height of the galaxy. And I get from a story point of view, it's it's trying to say something about how the state of the galaxy is so grand, so opulent. It's it's not a world that has been, you know, war torn and a sort of fraying at the edges. I get that. But I feel like there's something inherently Star Wars-y that used universe, that sort of hot rod feel of like the Millennium Falcon Mm -hmm. and stuff like to me is such an integral part of the Star Wars vibe, the Star Wars aesthetic. And maybe that's just my own bias I have. Well, I think some of this, too, is an age thing, right? We've already sort of established that like, you know, because I, I found myself having sort of a similar reaction of like the ships look newer and faster 
and sleeker. And I don't understand why they would make that technological jump from the Republic to the Empire. It feels like they're going backwards in a lot of ways in terms of design. But some of that too is that my experience is with four, five, and six first, and then one, two, and three. And from a chronological standpoint, in terms of effects and stuff, they can make it look nicer. Um, so there is a lived in element, but also, you know, how you talked about this was your introduction to Star Wars. And I think just, you know, experiencing that time forward through Star Wars versus experiencing it backwards through Star Wars absolutely informs what we think from a design standpoint, from a technological standpoint, what makes sense. I think you can try and argue it both ways. I do think that it's, it can be tough sometimes without the supplemental material, like the Clone Wars cartoon, like some of the books, like the comics, it can be tough sometimes to draw the through line because there are gaps in terms of aesthetic. For me, again, the aesthetic is often the technology. It's the ships that are used more than anything else. And the weapons, like those energy, cool energy things the Gungans have that we've, we never see obviously in four or five and six, the, um, that seem really effective against machines. So why wouldn't you keep using them? The droids, the tanks, like the tanks are look more advanced and more powerful than the 8080s other than the, than the adats can take a hit. So I think it, it's interesting. I think it's, it's tough sometimes to live in that world because I don't, I think a lot of consideration was put into the story and not as much into some elements of the world, which is why we end up with the Gungans as a placeholder. Anybody could have been the Gungans. I actually think it's the other way around. I think there was so much emphasis on the design. And I think that one of the problems this movie has, I think it's a problem inherent with prequels, is that, you know, it's supposed yeah. to be the first one, but it's really the fourth one. Yeah. Right. Yep. It's a problem common to all prequels. It's not yeah, just a unique problem yeah. here. It happened right. in Prometheus, so, which I just watched again recently. It's like, look at all this advanced tech in Prometheus that does not exist in Alien. Well, yeah. So, but I mean, so, but I mean, it's not just technology stuff. Like, it's even like, you know, I said in our Return of the Jedi episode that I consider in a lot of ways in retrospect, Return of the Jedi to be the prequel to the prequels. Mm hmm. And to kind of reverse that a little bit, I consider The Phantom Menace to be a, the sequel to Return of the Jedi in that. Which it is. Well, yes. Way. But all of the stylistic things that were begun in Return of the Jedi in terms of what a Star Wars movie was, how it was constructed, how it worked. Yeah. Are sort of doubled down on and exploded in the Phantom Menace. Like in the original Star Wars, the end battle over the Death Star is amazing. In the end sequence of The Empire Strikes Back, you're intercutting between the duel between Luke and Vader and the escape from Cloud City. Uh, Return of the Jedi, you're intercutting at the end between three action set pieces. The space battle over the Death Star, the battle on the surface of Endor, and the duel between Luke and Vader. And now in the Phantom Menace, the fourth movie, uh, you're intercutting between four action set pieces. You gotta listen now. Yeah, the raid on the palace, the battle between the Gungans and the droids, the space battle in space to destroy the droid control ship, and the duel of the fates between Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and Darth Maul. So you are seeing this progression in style, and while you can make justifications and like it kind of works, nobody watching this thinks this movie was made first. Right. Yeah. Yeah, in a vacuum with no other, zero context, somebody would be able to just inevitably conclude that. Yeah, one of the reasons George Lucas made these movies is because he wanted to make more movies. He wanted to use all the new tools that he had spent years developing. 
I mean, you're not going to tell him that for stylistic cohesion, you need to make this movie seem like it was made in 1968, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, I don't think you need to you try to convince him that it needs to look like it was made in that year. I think it's I think it's looking at. You know, it's it's this is a little bit I, and, and please forgive me if it's not a good parallel, but I, I went down a rabbit hole of of because I enjoyed watching Rings of Power. I did. I liked it. But I was reading somebody who, who somebody had written that they really didn't like Rings of Power. And here's why. And I was like, OK, I'm curious. And they talk about it's not as well considered, not as closely considered as Lord of the Rings were when it comes to things like travel time. And the timing is like too convenient. That stuff is not set up in Rings of Power very well. And the more I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, no, I can, I can hear that. I, I can still enjoy Rings of Power, but you're right. The, the, can, they did not consider as closely what the timeline should Tolkien, look like. Tolkien like extremely considered that. Right. Yeah. And in the first three movies, you know, Peter Jackson also strongly considered like, okay, how long does it take to get from A to B? If we need them to get there in time, when do they leave? Like. And also the way they told the story, you know, in Rings of Power, it seemed like some of this stuff was happening simultaneously. And then suddenly they're there. Elrond takes a morning stroll to Casa Doom. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> it, it, was, it was, it wasn't just, even, even if you argue, well, this was happening before. Right. But the way that you cut it together made it seem like it was simultaneous. And so it wasn't as well considered. And I think that's my thing with, with where my head is at and why the technology, it doesn't like, it doesn't drive me out of my mind. It doesn't make it unwatchable for me. I also found myself when I watched the movie last night, back to Phantom Menace, when I watched it last night, I was way less critical of it, and I enjoyed it more than I have probably since it first came out in theaters, honestly. I had the same thing today. Like, I was way less critical of it today. I was just enjoying it. it there were things that I would like, there were, but, and there was even less that I rolled my eyes at, not because it had gotten better over time, but I just didn't care as much. But the technology stuff, I just didn't think it was well considered. I think there are ways to make even if the ships look decadent at the, in the age of the Republic, maybe technologically inferior to some of the bulk we see in the X-Wings and the A-Wings. Um, and, and for me, we sort of don't, don't get that. I don't know. That's, and that was, I, this George, might George I think it's, he never, I, he doesn't seem overly beholden to strict continuity anyway. Exactly. Like, I, I mean, I don't even need to cite examples. I don't feel like anybody who's listening to this podcast knows what I mean. So I think it just kind of fits under that. Like I'm not if he if he, if he can make the ships look better, he's gonna he's gonna make them look better. And he wants that, to play that's with his toys. Be and this yeah. is like he wants to make a new Star Wars movie, so of course he's gonna go big bold. If know? anything, he'll get back around to the revised the older ones to fit it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, Hal, just before moving on, out of curiosity, at, and at the risk of opening a whole new can of worms here, uh, what is an example of the not really caring about continuity? Oh, I mean, like, it, you know, he felt like um, Revenge of the Sith was going to be a stronger story for having Padme die toward the end of the story and give it that kind of arc rather than, well, it's pretty unambiguously just told to us that she does survive that that point in the timeline, you know, in the in the earlier movie. But, it, you know, it's like, well, eh. Well, not, I shouldn't say that, that sounds dismissive. I mean, he, he, it's not like he didn't know that or remember it or forgot or something. That, that was just a creative choice. You know, I understand that uh, he almost forgot to, to record Obi-Wan picking up Anakin's lightsaber after their duel on Mustafar. It's like, oh, right, he has to pick that up because, you know, it has to get there for... 
he's not he's not sitting there. Okay, how do I reverse engineer the story and make something that's going to connect all the dots? He just he wants to tell new stories and hope that it connects well enough. I think a bright shining spot, which I really love, is Liam Neeson. Mm-hmm. I think he really does carry the movie. He has a lot of gravitas, and I was talking about the emoting thing, and I think he's the one that does it the best with the role that he's given. Like you can get, you could actually see a personality in him, and uh, I think he, yeah, and watching he it again, I was too. like, I was like, Liam Neeson is like he's making some choices here as an actor. That's like that's interesting given the confines of what he's doing. But that to what you're talking about with continuity, he, he shouldn't to, exist yeah. because you know Obi Wan's like you'll be taught by Yoda who taught me, and then when Yoda's talking to Luke, he was like, I wasn't much older than Luke when I started or something like that, and like. Weird. I took well, it upon myself like, to train Anakin as a Jedi. It, it, yeah. 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 And then he's just like, oh, by the way, I was taught when I was a baby. And it's like, well, that kind of this is so George Lucas clearly doesn't care about continuity, but like these movies, continuity is kind of willy nilly anyway. How's that? Like, how's that? Of Empire Strikes Back takes care of that little continuity well, point. No shit. Right. I mean, just a very, very slight split second thing. When Ben Kenobi appears on Hoth, you know, you will go to the Dagobah system and I just change the line. He's rather than saying, you know, in reference to Yoda, instead of saying the Jedi master who instructed me, he just says a Jedi master that instructed me. It's a just clipping a the huge, beginning of the syllable. Yeah. It's, no, that's, that's hopefully, but yeah, I mean, no, but, well, I mean it, but it does, it makes a difference because that, I have to admit that like, you know, there's, there are things, the things that they, they still bother me. They don't necessarily stop me from enjoying, but like mm-hmm. one of the things that always drove me nuts about the prequels is that the way it's written in the original, in, in, you know, the original movie and in, in A New Hope, Obi-Wan talks about the Clone Wars. Wars plural. Yeah. yeah. And like, this sounds like a really like ongoing, like multiple wars, multiple conflicts. Like it really sounds epic. And then it's just kind of not in terms of its scale. Like, I don't know if he necessarily changed his mind or he didn't know what he had in mind or this is what he always had in mind that projected. But there was, for me, there's that missing, that even if you drop the S in the first movie and you say the Clone War, I'm more likely to go, okay, this is a Clone War as opposed to the Clone Wars sounding like this epic series of All these continuity things that drive us crazy, like maybe kind of inadvertently as part of the fun, like a a significant part of the fun, I feel like for... People that continue, you know, like us, people like us. No, absolutely not wrong. I I agree with you, Al. Absolutely. I think there's, there's something that I enjoy about picking it apart only to put it back together. And, and there is something to be said too, about the fact that like, I can pick this the hell apart. I'm still watching it. I'm still happy to talk about it. And like I said, first time in like quite some time, I watched it last night, watched Phantom Menace and enjoyed it more than I had in years. I don't think it's necessarily like a good movie, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it guilt free. And it was it was an interesting experience. If nothing else, I mean, I'm enjoying this conversation, but if nothing else, it was interesting to like yeah. go back and enjoy the movie that I haven't enjoyed in a very long time. That was, that was to close to my to experience, too. By the time you get to it, you're just like, you know, yeah, step in that shit. Yeah. <laughs> like. Also, to get to the Qui-Gon thing, even though I said, you know, Qui-Gon probably shouldn't exist because of continuity, I'm glad he does because when it came out, he was immediately one of my favorite characters. And watching it now again, he's still one of my favorite characters. It's a great character. And I think that says a lot to like, that's a level of like Alec Guinness presence where it's like Alec Guinness is, yes, he's in all three of the original movies, but he's ostensibly the star of only one of them. And he only shows up for a couple of scenes in the other ones. And Liam Neeson's only in one movie. 
but his presence is as such where I feel like I remember thinking that the, the next two movies were like, we're just lacking it, which actually goes for the story because it's always good when somebody is like, like Vito Corleone, once they're gone, you just feel that they're gone, you know? But I don't know. Long story short, basically, like it was nice to just be refreshed and be like, "Oh yeah, like he really is as as cool as I remember." It wasn't just like a sixteen year old thinking he was like a cool Jedi lightsaber dude. He was like, "Oh, he's actually a good character." Though it is interesting, and I think actually you hit on something really important and interesting. Um, You know, Qui Gon really sums up this movie. It's like he shouldn't exist, strictly speaking. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, one of the more successful aspects of the movie. You know, you can argue. I've seen it argued that. Qui-Gon, like if you're watching this movie cold, like if you're watching this movie without having seen any Star Wars, he's the main character. He's the main character. Yeah. Yeah. He's the he's one like trying to accomplish something and, and who you 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 just intuit that what he wants to have happen, it really is what should happen and is for the best. He's the engine. He's the engine that makes the whole thing go. All the action ends up being more or less based around him and his actions. Yeah. Yeah, he he is literally the main character of I think of this film alone. Like, well, and he's I also the He's the reason Anakin gets trained, right? Yeah. Like this whole this whole thing leads up to it's interesting, but like Wygon is really he's the linchpin of Anakin's rise and fall. Well, yeah, there's that Dave Filoni quote. It's actually more than a quote. It's more like a little soliloquy where um, in the behind the scenes of uh, Mandalorian, I think is where it appeared, where he was talking about that round table face. discussion. Yeah, the round table discussion with all the directors. He was talking about Duel of the Fates and how this duel is really over is the fate of Anakin Skywalker. Like, is he going to be trained by Qui-Gon who, you know, in theory may have steered him clear of turning to the dark side, may have given him what he needed uh, because he was sort of a, um, you know, a rebel Jedi who didn't adhere strictly to the Jedi teachings. And maybe that's exactly what Anakin needed. Or are the forces of evil going to win and come to dominate Anakin's destiny? And when you read it that way, This movie is actually super effective and really clever because what it's doing is that it's presenting you with this main character who you assume is the main character. And, you know, like you said, Hal, is the voice of like what is supposed to to be happening. He's the guy who's right and he's the guy who's who's telling it like it is and saying what's really going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he dies. And now there's a gaping hole. And what ends up happening is the thing he was trying to do, which was train Anakin, turns into the biggest disaster that the galaxy has ever seen, right? Because it's it's out of obligation. It's not coming from that just original organic place from Qui-Gon that it came from. Yeah, exactly. Well, and there's that element, too, of, like, children raising children, right? Because Qui-Gon does say, like, you know, Obi-Wan is ready for the trials. He's ready. And they're like, but are you? And that's the council. The council does not think that necessarily Obi-Wan is ready. And even if he's ready for the trials, he's not ready to be someone's Jedi master. He's ready to be a Jedi knight, not a Jedi master. And there's a difference, right? So like, it's interesting because it is for me because, because Obi-Wan does say, Anakin, you are a brother to me. And so it's, it's a child raising another child when he wasn't quite ready to be raising a child. That's a really interesting point. Absolutely. Josh, there's something that we used to agree upon in the past that my opinion of actually changed while watching the movie, which was um, they always set up the the downfall of Anakin as being sort of like the tragedy of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And what the Phantom Menace, what we used to argue was that like, oh, it kind of takes away some of the guilt from Obi-Wan Kenobi because he's like, I never wanted to train him anyway. 
my opinion of that kind of switched because it's like, I think it still puts some blame on Obi-Wan because Qui-Gon is the only one that sees the potential for Anakin that has to be trained. And what I saw with Qui-Gon, it's like, whether or not, whatever, whatever they thought of Anakin, it didn't matter because his potential was so crazy that he has to be trained. He might be too dangerous to be left alone. Like he has to be trained. And then so by Obi-Wan going with the council, Obi-Wan is reflective of the old ways that Qui-Gon was a maverick too. Therefore, Anakin was trained by the old ways, which allowed him to be easily more corrupted by the Emperor. Okay. So and, and so in a sense, like Obi-Wan still has that guilt that I think he should and as a mm -hmm. character have, you know. He, well, he substantively has Return of the Jedi. And it's it, to your point yeah. earlier, Chris, about the thought that the Jedi were supposed to be corrupt, you know, that they're supposed to be depicted as being corrupt. You know, not so much. They were they were certainly they were right in this case. Qui-Gon was right and they were right because Qui-Gon came at it with that kind of insight about Anakin's potential and he would have presumably given Anakin's the, Anakin the conditions he would have needed to thrive or do well or something like that. And the Jedi Order were uh, correct in their gatekeeping role there too. Well, I think it's tough because you're right, John, when you say about Obi-Wan teaching him in the old ways, what I'm often thinking about, and I, and I got some more of it last night while I was watching Phantom Menace because... Obi-Wan can be so dismissive and so judgmental. He gets some of that from Qui-Gon and the way Qui-Gon can sometimes seem dismissive and sometimes seem judgmental. I don't know if this is just me projecting. I don't know if this is me digging for layers that aren't there. And it's possible that that's the case. But like, I think a lot of times it's sort of like looking at a first year psychology student or somebody who graduated with an undergraduate degree in psychology. They know just enough to be dangerous. And I think that's where Obi-Wan gets off. Obi-Wan does, he emulates some of the things that Qui-Gon does as, as a teacher. But I don't think Obi-Wan understands why Qui-Gon does those things. Yeah, the, the only mistake was for them to not be sure and to have, have him try it anyway. Right, right. And he ends up doing these things, like the things that he does, even if they're similar to what Qui-Gon did, rather than endearing the master to the apprentice, the way that Qui-Gon endeared Obi-Wan to him, it alienates Anakin in a lot of ways because he doesn't understand this is what this tool can be used for. I don't know. It was just something that I was thinking about is like, interesting. he, he yeah. teaches, but since he doesn't know what the tools do, he's misusing them. He's, he's learning how to be a teacher as he goes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Because he's a Jedi Knight, not a Jedi Master. Yeah, exactly. He shouldn't be, like he says, like the older brother taking care of the younger brother. That's basically what he was. Going back to the Jedi and the Jedi Council, what do we think of the idea of the Jedi Council? Because here it sort of seems inevitable that this is how the Jedi would organize themselves, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion. I do think it is interesting that the Jedi have this council in the capital of the galaxy next to the seat of government. Hot again coming. Hot take incoming that's absolutely on par with what you're saying, I think, Josh. I think Palpatine is right when he says the Chancellor never should have brought them into, into this, killed them immediately. Like, he's right. The Chancellor never should have brought the Jedi into this, this trait dispute. Or the Jedi, or do you think the Jedi shouldn't be involved in politics so int intimately in the first place, too? Or Yeah, like, this is not their role in the galaxy. Their role is not necessarily to, because they're not there to mediate. They're there to break down what's should happening. Should they upset the balance or should they maintain it? Balance being this delicate, complicated, intricate political mess that it is. 
I think the problem is that they don't, they do exactly what you were saying earlier. They don't commit either way. They're so non-committal that they end up doing the middle of the road thing where like they interfere in some places, they don't interfere in others. I think they do what oftentimes we see, this is my opinion, what we often see the U.S. do. Whether you believe that we should be in another country or not, we use a justification in one country that could be applied to another country, and then we don't do that. So we use it as a defense, and it's just, it's not consistent. And I think that's what we see the Jedi do when they get involved here. And the cha- they, they come in, not in an open way, like the chancellor puts it to a vote, and the Senate agrees that like, yeah, the Jedi need to be a mediator here. No, it's done totally in secret. So the Jedi, really, what are they doing there? And so, like, I struggle with, like, I, I think that, you know, obviously Palpatine is the bad guy. I'm not saying he's secretly the good guy. But I do think there's an element of what he's saying with regards to what relationship the Jedi have. And then we see them fall even further when they get involved in war, which the fuck are they doing there? Um, so I think there's an element of, like, no, he's right. Gonna... The Chancellor, certainly not secretly. I'll add a word there. The Chancellor never should have secretly brought them into this. I feel like they were going to get involved anyway, because kind of like, even if you take the inspiration of other movies like Seven Samurai and stuff like that, like if they are the guardians of peace in the galaxy, they're going to catch wind of what's happening in Naboo. And then Amidala would be like, like if I'm not going to, if you, if you politicians are going to do anything about it, I'm going to find myself a Jedi Knight. And then they would have gotten involved. Like, they're also going to get caught up in the, and not be able to do anything in the end. You know, different. It's like this does a good job of just explaining, like, you know, you think that something something needs to happen, and, and somebody needs to jump in there, Batman style, and just fix things up. And it's like, well, it's, it's just it's not, not about chopping off heads. Yeah, that's not how it works. You got to go back to Naboo yourself. Well, so, but it is interesting too, like the relationship between the government and the Jedi. Like, you know, this is a plot point in the next movie. The Republic has no standing army; they don't have an army, and the Jedi sort of, I guess, fill that peacekeeping void, right? But what is interesting is that they're not supposed to be an arm of the government, but they kind of become one. I think it's very interesting that their council is in proximity to the Senate chamber in the capital of the galaxy, in the seat of power in the galaxy. I don't think, and again, I don't know the lore, you know, in the expanded universe, but it seems to me it wasn't always like that. And also, uh, aesthetically speaking, they're towering over everything around them. And they're not yeah, they're on sort the ground of level over the, everything. Walking, yeah, yeah. They're, they're not on the ground level with the people. Because I always thought if they were to have some sort of gathering, and probably the way that maybe Qui-Gon would even want it, would be an informal gathering at a local pub among the masses. <laughs> you know? Or they wouldn't be so centralized. But yeah, we didn't know a lot about the Jedi at all coming into... You know, no, exactly. This no, no, way more here. And so it's an interesting choice to just kind of telegraph to the audience like these guys are out of touch by just having the aesthetics of where they are at, you know? Now, whether or not that's what George Lucas actually intended, I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know seems how. reasonable you, to me. It works. Yeah, I mean, like, I think he intended some of this. To your point, how, like, you know, stuff like... It's still the, in there. Um, no, no, yeah, it's still in there. Like, I do ultimately think that George Lucas feels that the Jedi were and are righteous. Maybe it's just paradoxical, and that's just part of it. I mean, I, I don't, I, yeah. I, I appreciate that it, the Phantom Menace especially gives us just this rich room to ruminate and, and think about all these these intricate, complex things for which the human race is still, you know, hashing out long term viable solutions for. Anyway, I will say this: there's a lot of things 
that happens in all the prequels, but it, it's also evident in the Phantom Menace where like things happen because they have to happen. Yes. And and like and that's still like I, I still can't get my head around certain things where they're like, uh yeah, Wada will free Anakin, but he's not gonna free your mom, so bye. And it's like he's a Jedi master with a Jedi Knight with these people, and they're gonna go to like the Republic anyway, where the Republic is like infinite amount of money. It's like mm-hmm. you can take his mom. Like, and like, know, and was, like I and did I, hear a counter argument to that. Actually, incidentally, I heard it today was it uh, from somebody I share my office with when I was talking to her about it. And I was like, I, I'm not necessarily sold on it, but I thought it was interesting because I hadn't really thought too much about it before. Although it does make me think less of the Jedi. that The reason Qui-Gon does not take Shmi Skywalker. The slippery slope? No, it's not the slippery slope argument. It's that. It, it then Anakin can't be trained properly because now he still has that attachment to his mother. And the question also becomes, if this is how Anakin gets out of a life of slavery, his mother will let him go. But if they're both, if they both leave together, would she really let him, the only family member that she has, would she really let him be taken away by the Jedi to be trained? And that's also yeah. ultimately why he comes back yeah. to, is because he's always looking back. She tells him not to look back, but he does when he comes back to to Tatooine again. I'm not saying I'm necessarily sold yeah, on. Yeah. Like, I, and I think I, I'm not, like I'm it's entirely sold story language. It just it's, it has to be understood that if he if he leaves, I guess that's kind of your point. Just that it had to be that way. And so like the like it had to happen. But or, or, but the way I see it too, it's like she doesn't have to go with him on his adventure. They could free like, her, and she just goes to live on Hawaii. A condo, and yeah, they could have put him like in Hawaii planet or any of their you know exactly. recruits or like, anything. A condo in Coruscant, and Coruscant. Like look, you might not nine. You might not see your your kid again for like maybe ten or fifteen years, but like put her in a nice, comfortable place like in Alderaan before it blows up. You know, like, and they would have, they totally she has to be done. just another person. Like, the Jedi don't, they're not Batman. I, but I don't then, know. But yeah. then that kind of goes into, like, well, how much of a maverick is Qui-Gon? How much is it is dogma? How much is it? And it, since it's not really there, as an audience, I'm like, dude, there's no one stopping you from taking his mob. Like, Why didn't Qui-Gon no just take out a gun? Yeah. She could have lived next door to uh, Cyril's mom and that yeah, uh, with nice... The, with the cereal and all that. Turns uh, out uh, Watto yeah, is willing to give up Shmi if he brings a gun. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. I mean, let me do you one better. Why doesn't Qui-Gon free all the slaves? Yeah. On Tatooine. Why doesn't everybody like, do everything? Well, no, I mean, I'm being serious. This is what I mean. The Jedi, they pick and choose. Well, mm-hmm. the same thing with your uh, your analogy to, like, U.S. foreign policy, Chris, is that, like, you know, if we're really going to walk the walk here, you know, if we use the thing as a justification here, not there, like, there's nothing really stopping Qui-Gon from freeing all the slaves on Tatooine. He even says, I didn't come here to free slaves. But the thing stopping him is he doesn't want to upset the status quo. Mm-hmm. You know, which is, I mean, feel about that how you feel. But that's really what it is. I mean, like you were but saying. Also, he doesn't take her because of the money or whatever. And it's like, okay, fine. Leave her there for like, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Go get the shit that Watto likes. Get like ten times the amount. Bring it back. Like this is enough. <laughs> like, well, like give, give Watto that money to retire capacity. Yeah, but like, but even then, like right. he could have like like even Obi Wan, like all of them, like even even Padme at some point were like, hey, I am a queen. We should just go back and give Watto whatever yeah, Padme he wants can do it, and bring, yeah. and bring, bring also, Shmi to Naboo. Like right. that would have been and totally, also, like, like they never do that. Qui Gon feels he feels confident enough in what he feels he needs to do. To cheat when the when the chance cube is rolled, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Remember when the Huts tried to stop Luke Skywalker and Return of the Jedi from doing whatever the hell he wanted to do? <laughs> Killed everybody. Chris, you're right, though. I think what your coworker said was right. I think maybe Qui-Gon, had he lived, I think he may very well have finagled some way to free Shmi. But Obi-Wan's a hardcore I, company man. No, I mean, seriously, this is not... Even still, still like, his mom, he, we like, just learned, let, let his mom retire, not be a slave. No, I mean, like, we just learned, you know, last summer, whatever it was in the Obi-Wan show, he was he was taken away from his family. He he had a brother, he thinks, right? Named, um, named you know, Owen, I have to assume. Named Owen, I have to assume. is a different Owen. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is how it's done. I think it's as simple as that, and... You know, do with that information what you will. I think it has it has implications for. I think that's the best answer because uh, that that's exactly what Anakin would you know kind of reacts to it in in part anyway. Is, yeah, you know that that mm -hmm. it's just part and parcel. It wasn't a circumstance thing. It was just characteristic of the Jedi to let that go. And she dies. She dies. And I don't think that that critique is unfounded. Certainly not from Anakin's perspective, at least in the story. But it's just one of those things where it's like uh, there, whatever the whatever explanation that was given to us in the movie, I just felt like I don't think that's strong enough given the righteousness really of these characters. Logic question. Yeah, it's a fridge you know, logic Yeah, it's thing. like, hey, can we bring the slave? And it's like, uh, no. I'm like, okay, fuck it, let's go. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, wait, 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 back a little bit. Yeah. You think Yoda's worked up enough of a pension by then to just give somebody a break? It's in Republic credits, man. Don't you listen? Oh, yeah. So Republic credits don't work out here. Infinite amount of them would not be enough. Yeah, I know. Um, do we think so? The whole being separated from his mother is the whole reason why, according to George Lucas, he made Anakin nine years old instead of you know maybe closer in age. Yeah. Look, because because that was so fundamental in his mind to Anakin's downfall, right? Like his attachment. Yeah, I wonder sometimes like if maybe Shmi's character could have just been like sick or needed like dependent on him or something, but he could have been older yes. or something that's, like that. Exactly. Yeah, he left, she, he, he should have been like he that. left, she needed him, and then she dies without him, he feels guilty. It seems like there's any there's any number of other things they could have done other than well, also Pad, nine. Padme's also the real 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 reason why he kind of goes ballistic for the movie. well no the no, argument he slaughters he slaughters yeah, I, I, I know i was gonna say episode two i totally forgot about that but like yeah. in the end like it's it's not just they, they give him multiple attachments for him to to latch on to basically yeah, but also women in his life the thing with the mother though like losing his mother is why he sees that he can he can lose them and he's he's determined not to to lose again that with padme this is true so it seems like we all kind of feel like maybe anakin could have been older without we all have we all have attachments that we develop and i think that you could make the argument especially because it's a fictional character absolutely if you wanted to go a different route and say qui-gon lives into the second movie and he lives long enough that when he that when Qui-Gon dies, that's the attachment that sends Anakin over the edge. Like he lost his father figure. He could have like I think there's any number of ways to say yeah, he maintains an attachment. He realizes that loss is eminent and he doesn't want that to be the case, especially when somebody says, hey, loss is not eminent. Um, I don't I don't think the age thing. I think you can do it that way. I don't think you have to do it that way. To use that as sort of a justification, he needs to be this age because it just feels a little and weak. I sauce. think that this, the only reason it's a problem is 
well, to put it one way, it, it's not a problem if you read the novelization. So if you're just reading the novelization as a book, then you can imagine him as, as being a mature nine-year-old. You can imagine, you know, Queen Amidala as being like a, a true like child queen or whatever, like she's kind of specified to be, but just doesn't come across that way in the movie itself. Like story-wise, I don't really have a problem with it. It's just kind of, it's just kind of a stretch to imagine Queen Amidala and, you know, Jake Lloyd, nine years old, as just being being much of a thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, now the, uh, the whole thing with, you know, Queen Amidala is, uh, is the ruler of this planet at 14 years old is also something that kind of strains. Elected. Really to me. 14 or whatever. Yes. Yes, yeah. elected. And I was, I was actually. I think it would be more interesting uh, if she wasn't kings. Elected. With the way that she uh, talks to literally everybody in and out of costume, I was picturing her like campaign commercials. Just, like, <laughs> Please elect me for, you know, it's just like, how, and then people were like, this 14 year old, that, that this is the one. <laughs> Like, yeah. it just seemed like an odd thing. Well, let's talk about Padme slash Queen Amidala as a character. I think on paper, there's a lot of potential for someone to be really interesting. She's living a double life. She's very curious. She has a big heart. But these are all things on paper that the movie's telling me. Right. But, like, it's nothing that I'm seeing in the actual portrayal of the character. Not because of Natalie Portman. But because of the choices that that was put onto the character, that just is like she now does A, B, C, D, and E. But like, it, there's just no like. She needed a real spark of just uh, yeah of something. No there, there needs to be a twinkle in her eye at some point, and there just never is. All and this it, stuff happened off stage. Before. You told me, and you didn't show me. Exactly. Like it's one of the scenes where it's like Obi Wan's the guy with the blue lightsaber. That's how I know he's Obi Wan. Like Padme's the queen. Signifiers. It's just like being an active character. It's it just there. There needs to be some like, and it's maybe it's not fair like to a expect personality. of the actor, of course, you know. But uh, you know, like the the same thing that you said, Liam Neeson really pulled off. Natalie Portman just you know wasn't in a position to, but maybe was just kind of needed anyway. She's the most constrained one in the whole movie, more than the Jedi Knights. She's very very constrained in her acting and i know that's a choice from lucas to make her do that but it's like to what end because all i see is someone who's very constrained and then when she even when she sees anakin she's like hey how are you are you cold okay and it's just like are you connecting to anakin are you pretending to be someone so you're not getting caught she looks annoyed and and yeah and she's pretending to be someone to not get caught you're not allowing her to breathe to just be vulnerable you know or at least when she's in her handmaiden mode, let her let let the style change. You know, notice exactly. Let her be like a totally different person when she's a handmaiden and not the queen. But she acts like the queen. I think as it, the I think it does change a little. But little, just maybe not enough. I mean, she yeah, smiles the, a few times, I guess. But yeah, yeah, she has a couple of smiles. You know? Well, let me throw something else at you <laughs> because Hal, you're right. She is an active character. But like one of the things under the heading of telling, not showing, that I think this movie is guilty of is we hear about how her people are suffering and dying, but we see none of that. It's not about the people. We don't we don't care about them. It, Star Wars has never been about the the Alder the people in Alderaan, nobody cares. It doesn't matter. It matters for Leia. Well that is very true, except for the fact that this is her motivation. She talks about it being her motivation. And for us it's a very abstract kind of idea. But actually, how what you just invoke is actually, I think, very apt. Like in Star Wars, by Star Wars I mean Star Wars a New Hope, um, we just take as read that blowing up a planet is really bad. Right. Yeah. So so but we don't see it because we see it in Leia's uh, like, eyes and, and, and that her performance and that, that's allowed to react that way, you know, but 
you know, Queen Amidala on screen just doesn't really convey that. You understand that, of course, she's the queen of the planet. Her people are being killed. She and, she, and she's taking action and everything. But I don't know. There's just something lacking also, that uh, is unfortunate. I, I, I notice in this viewing, I don't think that people are getting killed until the battle because Obi-Wan says it's a bluff. They're doing this because they said, yeah. don't make radio contact. And they're yeah. saying, we're dying, we're dying, we're dying. He said, they use like bait. He said, you're being used as bait. Don't mm -hmm. respond. And she keeps watching the same message of them saying they're dying. That the chipper they're tone not of the actually, parade at the end, too. Exactly. They're not actually dying. It's some kind of threat of getting killed. Because if they start killing them, they're not. she's not going to sign a treaty. Question, actually. So is, it's the threat of it. Point. As long as we're talking about that, do we actually ever, because I watched it last night and I had like a, a little bit of a Scooby-Doo like moment. Um, do we ever figure out who it is that answers the communique? So that Maul can find them? No, I don't. Think, I, I don't believe so. Because Maul, because Maul and Palpatine, when they're talking, um, you know, the they say that the signal is traced, traced back, yeah. back to Atween. So like somebody answers, but I don't. I was like, did I just miss it? Because I was like, no, I don't, I don't think you missed it. I, I think. Oh that, well, there was a scene where um, when she finds Anakin in the cargo hold, she's watching the message again. That's long right. after that, though. It's, but I wonder if I wonder if maybe it's implied that she responded like behind the she scenes. She was off like, the ship. Off I, mean, that point. I don't see how she could have. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. I don't really know. Maybe unless they had a like a tracker that he's referring to, because he says when Newt Gunray is saying they're out of our range, Sidious says not for a Sith, and then that's Maul's introduction, mm -hmm. and he says he will find your lost ship. So maybe he right. had some way of Nefarious. tracking that were maybe it says trace and they set that up. I don't know. I, that's that's my thing. Logically, I think that there's a I think there's other possible ways, technically sure. or whatever. But like the movie really seems to give us all the pieces to conclude this. Yeah, they, they do stuff yeah. like that, like like Mace Windu, uh, like Qui Gon says to the Council, like I fought a bad guy with a lightsaber. I think he's a Sith. They're like, oh, we'll investigate that, and then they fight him again, and he dies, and goes, yep, he was a Sith. It's like it's the same evidence that you had before. <laughs> no, no, you're, there's no new no, you're development right. in this. Did he say anything? No. I know. It's like, no, it's like, you no, know, they fought him twice the first time, like maybe the second time. Like, a red lightsaber. Well, like, to be fair, I think the second time, I think they had. No, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I was, was going to say that. It, uh, there was no had... investigation. There was just like, there's nothing new. With the second encounter, like they had the more extensive encounter with Obi Wan, who may have given he them. He might have just been like, "Yeah, he's right," but like, why would Qui Gon lie? I'm just gonna say this. I'm just gonna say this, Josh. Please don't hurt your back reaching for that one. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they could. They could just tell. They could. They just knew. Darth Maul told him with his mind, using his he, mouth off screen. He survived. He survives. So there you go. Let me lob didn't, a bomb. Well, didn't oh. they also add the shot of him falling in half as, as George Lucas telling the audience that he's definitively dead and then he just yeah, changed his he's mind? he's dead. There's no way. There's, There's no way around it. There's You do not come back I, from that. I, I, he I, is unequivocally, un, unequivocally, undeniably, certifiably dead. In this movie, that's true because I think in, there's an interview that George Lucas said like right after the movie came out. goes, oh yeah, like I added that shot so people didn't, didn't think that he would ever come right. back. That's hilarious. Yeah. I didn't know that. I remember rolling my eyes so hard when hearing, because I wasn't watching Clone Wars at the time, but hearing that, oh, we resurrected Darth Maul. And it's like, okay, this cartoon so really sounds like, come on. The movie told me he died. I will say as a quick aside, it does set up a really, really nice um, finale 
a nice final confrontation between Maul and Obi Wan mm. in the is, Rebels that is series. Nice. That is it's nice. pretty very cool. cool. We're yeah, on the green. No, it is cool. No, I mean, look, I think, I mean, let's talk about Darth Maul for a second. I think Thank a you. lot of people were really bummed out that he died because he was such a cool character and yes. his uh, his potential wasn't explored. So, he was so the I mean, Boba if I'm Lucas, the prequel trilogy, like people are like, who is this guy? And then he's gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, arguably, it's like a real triumph of design. Nowadays, maybe they would have just brought him back for a little limited miniseries prequel to Phantom Menace or something. But it's like, oh, we want more of him and we're doing the Clone Wars. He reminds me of Vader. He reminds me of Vader in that, like, you have this, he has this bestial presence, this rage, this, this unstoppable, he just keeps coming, right? Because we see that with, with Qui-Gon and he just, he just keeps coming. I really... But it's a different design. They didn't just redo Vader. It's a different approach. And I and I kind of dug that. I really liked the Maul character. That's actually a, a one moment. I mean, I think everyone's in agreement that the the, the highlight of Phantom Menace is the Duel of the Fates duel. But yeah, um, yes. and that's the one thing that everyone comes to. Like like all movies aside, like Duel of the Fates has like that awesome duel. But that one part where they're in the force field hallway, that's a great moment of showing and not telling. Because yeah. that's North Maul walking like a panther. Yep. He's like, and, it's, and then you see Qui-Gon sitting there meditating, getting yeah. centered. Qui-Gon goes Obi to his knees. Nietzsche and, and sheep it, almost. Yeah, and, and <laughs> Obi-Wan is like anxious because he's so far away. And he's like, he's like, he's like, I got to get there. I got to get there. And like, that's really good showing, not telling. Even he, that, he, no, he, you can take that and make me illustrate our point earlier about the, uh, you know, Qui-Gon was the the one that was just Zen and focused and was presumably going to train Anakin right. Anakin's or mm -hmm. Obi-Wan is uh, anxious about the task when it comes to him and 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 fumbles exactly. it or whatever and Maul was just going to kill everyone anyway if he got the <laughs> No, and, yeah. No, and Maul and I really I really like looking back now. I like that moment because when I was younger, I liked when when Obi-Wan comes through and it's nonstop action until he's knocked into the pit, right? Until he's actually he's got the upper hand. He His breaks balance Maul's is upset, state. but he's 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 in the right as far as our uh, Sensibilities right. as the audience. We want him to go yes. Batman and just. But I, right. And I love that, that actually, that moment now that I'm a little older, that moment when Qui-Gon gets through, he's dueling, and then Obi-Wan gets stuck. And there's like this, like, the music is almost non-existent. There's yeah, this, like, out. this whispering yeah. sound that we hear, this whispering effect, as the two of them duel in silence. And then. Maul gloats with his face. He doesn't say anything to Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan yells no, but that's it. I like the sort of almost absence of sound. It's so yeah. sinister and it's so inevitable that Qui-Gon is going to lose this duel. Um, I just, I, I actually, that's my favorite part of the duel and it never was before. Yeah. And like, just like as soon, like the millisecond the door opens, like the way that Lee Meeson's eyes flash open to complete attention and he runs in. And I think... As a character, he kind of knows that like he has to keep the attack on him because Darth Maul is better. And then there's this cool moment like right before he even dies where they're both like not doing anything, but they're both just kind of like checking each other out. Like, what are mm. you going to do next? And then yeah. uh, unfortunately, Qui-Gon's the one that falters because he gets, you know, knocked in the face. But like, it's all in that quiet moment. And there's we also, are Obi-Wan watching it just being like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck, oh, fuck. There's, yeah, there's also, there's also that moment where, like, he doesn't wait for Obi-Wan, right? Yeah. He just goes on the attack and he absolutely, you see the more impulsive. I could have like, run Obi-Wan, couldn't he have? Let, let's regroup. I mean, he didn't he have to run forward. And he, but I think and, he, and he, he could have, he's not, not, 
Yeah, well, like I, I think she knew turning. that like that Darth Maul was like was going to out was outmatching both of them, and I think he knew that like he just had to be relentless, but the, until Obi Wan could catch up. But the other element of this though is that the other thing Qui Gon could have done, and I'm not saying you're necessarily going to do this in the moment, but like, why are you fighting Maul in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why not talk? He had a red <laughs> lightsaber. Because he had a red lightsaber. Yeah. Because you need to you need to be able a to double, a double sided one. He read so blue team. lightsabers because we were good right. people. He's he's a Sith. You're fighting him because you you need to know where he came from. You're fighting him so that everything else can happen because whatever Maul does, as long as he doesn't stop the rest of the battle from happening. Oh, that's true. That's a good point. You yeah, have him trapped. He's distracting him. He's trapped. You have him in a fucking cage that his lightsaber can't get him out of. If you back up then you can either he's going to come out and fight you together on ground you're already aware of, or he's going to stay in there and be holed up. Like, there are other things you could have done. I'm not, this is not a criticism of the way the movie is written or anything. I like that we see there's, I think this is for me, there's a connection between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Qui-Gon can see in Obi-Wan the kind of impulsivity he had that was younger that sometimes made him a rebel or a renegade. Mm-hmm. or a maverick and we finally get to see some of that um, impulsivity besides when he yeah. stays in the jedi council chambers and disagrees and obi-wan says why do you do that master you know and it's like that we're seeing these this little bit of insight into who qui-gon sometimes is or maybe was when he was younger and i yeah. think we get that here when you're right he does need to press the attack only if he's going to defeat maul as opposed to no he's trapped let him make the move I have the high ground. And this right. movie, better than two and three, I, I, well, at least better than three, is good at, at least enough of the time, even when it's telling you rather than showing you, it's still showing you by telling you rather than just telling you so that you can read all these things out of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. That sequence especially, maybe. Yeah, that, that sequence. I wondered too, like, because there is a language to choreography and Nick, Nick Gillard, the guy that I yeah. choreographed all that, like he said, he put a lot of thought into um, their motions and styles and stuff like that. And I, I feel like I wonder if that's that was an arena where George Lucas like just stepped back I'm and sure. like Maybe. allowed the stunt choreographer just kind of do it. And he was like, "That looks good. That looks yeah, good." That no dialogue. Good choreographers use combat to tell a story. Exactly. You know, like I've heard stories about how when they were doing Rise of Skywalker and they had a, a, a thing like a different choreographer and they were trying to tell uh, Adam Driver to do this and that. And he goes, no, Kylo wouldn't do that. He would do it this way. And like, but that's all about showing and not telling. And so I don't know. I just find, I just think it's a, it's a cool example how that Duel of the Fates is the one thing in the movie, mm-hmm. whether people hate the movie or love the movie <laughs> or older generation, younger yeah. generation, everyone's like, yeah. Since, awesome. since you brought up Rise of Skywalker, I want to just just highlight just for a second, uh, just the the real opposite portrayal of Palpatine that we get in Phantom Menace and Rise of Skywalker, where it's the dastardly behind the scenes, you know, political machinations and and everything to, to rise to power versus you know the return of Mecha Zombie Hitler in a weird kind yeah. of way. No, it's fine. It's a journey. Actually, though, you know, Hal, you mentioned something too that I wanted to just really quickly bring up. You mentioned earlier that we're seeing some of this battle through the eyes of of Obi-Wan, uh, some of this duel. And it it struck me, I don't know about the rest of you, it struck me as kind of super odd in this like viewing that the only time we actually see anything happening literally from a character's eyes 
is when 3PO is watching Anakin as Anakin says, you're great. I'm going to tell mom not to dismantle you. Bye. Yeah, like, that is very bizarre. A that, it's a little weird. It is a very bizarre filmmaking choice. I don't know why. We've well, the never droids are supposed to show us the whole story. Uh, it's supposed to be from their point of view all along anyway. That's, That's just a literal That's instance it. of it, maybe. That's you know. it. You just but figured like, it out. I, I no, feel like when they shot that, I feel like when they shot that, they're like, yeah, maybe in the edit, we'll put some filters on it with some data readouts, like in the Terminator. <laughs> right. Like that. And then they're like, yeah, fine. It's fine. They're like, no, but how, it's how you're exactly right, though. That's why that's there. I don't know if it's deliberate. That's just snarky, snarky take on it. But, but I mean, no, but that's yeah. the kind of thing. That's the kind of thing. Because so let's talk about 3PO for a second. And then I have uh, one last thing I want to cover. Okay. 3PO has no role in this movie, but he has he really to really doesn't. Uh, 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 he looked really you know, cool. No, yeah, he looked really cool. The, um, he been, I think 3PO and R2 should have switched places. 3PO should have been the stuffy, you know, Queen's droid or whatever, and R2's the, you know, gadget thing, you know, that can do everything, help with the pod racer that Anakin would have wanted to build or soup, soup yep. up or whatever. He should have been in his pod helping him out. Yeah. I think that's a really good idea. Um, my thing that I was going to say was that I think 3PO should have been TC-14 at the very beginning of the movie, and instead of Jar Jar, they're stuck with this, you know, droid servant who sneaks down to the planet with them by accident, and, like, he becomes the sidekick. I mean, that's my sort of... Could have worked. Rewrite, if we're going to do that. But, how? like, you're right. The, like, hot rod droid that would have been more useful to his mother, ostensibly the reason why he... he oh, great, a protocol thing. droid. Thanks. Right. Day yeah, as, as a slave, she I really made this macaroni right. sculpture. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> Annie. I'll have a lot of use for learning decorum and communicating with yeah. all the. I I entertain a lot of a lot of dignitaries. It's like it's the only thing. I mean, come on. I pulled it out of the trash. Like I didn't. I don't know. By the way, I wanted to point this out. Did you guys ever notice in your million times seeing it in the same day in the theater that in the background of Watto's shop there is a a set of you know three PO art or you know, plating that has it's all there except for the one lower leg. The leg? Just like just like Creepio in the original trilogy where it has that one silver leg. Never noticed no, that. It no, just, I, it's, I, it's just there. If you go back and look, like when Jarder's knocking stuff over, you can see it. There's just cool. this three no, piece of armor. And so as a kid, it's like, you know, we have episode one and I have episodes four, five, and six. So it's like, okay, that's where his armor comes from. Why else would it be there? That's funny. No, I'm well, gonna, that, I'm gonna no, I'm sure that's true. You know what sucks, though, is that like, and they tried to recapture this a little bit in The Force Awakens, but, you know, what's cool about his one silver leg is that it suggests this, right, this life. large history backstory. So, I mean, so, I mean, like, while it is super cool that that's like a little Easter egg in there that, I mean, is actually never really followed up on because next time we see him, he's he's not wearing gold armor, right? He's wearing silver. Yeah, it doesn't work. No, it, he, it, it doesn't. It's no. like. Yeah. rusted metal sort of it's an easter egg uh, is all that it is but yeah yeah right. no one but thing like, i did notice from the theater days to now is that when the jedi arrive on coruscant after everything's done and the emperor is talking to them and in the background you see them walking down the the ramp there's a stand-in for mace windu who's not who's not samuel you captured their stunt doubles exactly and he's in like two shots and you see the clear as days like that is not samuel jackson no no. And they never did anything about it. By the way, just out of curiosity, what version of the movie did you guys watch? Did you watch the theatrical with the puppet Yoda or the one with the CG Yoda that's on Disney Plus? CG on Disney Plus. Same here, which I... I meant to watch the HDTV version, which would have 
I say that, I mean, the, the same transfer that we got on the original DVD, but in high mm -hmm. definition. Yeah. I didn't, I thought I had a copy of it saved and I, I didn't. So I just had to watch the regular kind of modern official version like everybody else did here. Yeah, like that's not a change that really bothers me that much. It it gives the prequel trilogy some puppet. You're some the, going to CG Yoda. Yeah, the CG Yoda. And, yeah, well, I mean, the, like, the, I feel like it I makes sense confusion. to do. It's it's. I don't yeah. I don't like it for the standalone movie of the Phantom Menace. Right. But if you're going to give the continuity of one, two, and three, it makes more sense for him to be CG because agreed. Big. Well, the puppet the puppet was a little. It was a weird odd puppet, looking. But... Yeah. Right. It was a so, little. Uh, I think the puppet is tough to do younger. He was, I think he was still getting his blood transfusions every week at this point. He didn't go to Dagobah for 20 years to get stale. Right, right. Um, okay, well, the last thing I want to talk about. Um, midichlorians, discuss. No. No. Pass. <laughs> I, Can you do that? Let's think, watching this version, because this is, I mean, this is the... This was the first time I actually watched The Phantom Menace proper in a very long time you know, as opposed to a fan edit version sure. and getting to the midichlorians, I was prepared to think they were okay. And Qui-Gon kept talking about them and kept talking about them and get really hammered home how, nope, this is the technical mechanism that this mystical spiritual thing takes place within. And I know you can behind the scenes or Dave Filoni probably said something about whatever, but me watching the movie, that's what it's telling me. And I, I, it, it it just what it, the only thing I can think of is that what two things it, it gives a quick, easy way to just tell us that Anakin is just supercharged virgin birth messiah, whatever, which is kind of weird anyway. And it ties into the the symbiosis theme because uh, I mean, since you brought up my fan edit, my fan edit kind of elegantly just removes the, this, the symbiosis thing almost completely by not setting it up early in the movie and not having midichlorians either. But midichlorians just. I vote no on Midichlorians for the same reason why everybody's talked about it for, you know, 24 years. It, it's, yeah. it's interesting because, like, it, it's all kind of unnecessary. We don't need Midichlorians to know that he's strong in the Force. All he has to say with his magical Force powers is, like, yeah. I've never sensed anyone more powerful than this yeah. kid before. You also <laughs> would have further and it was good. That'd be a different yeah. question. But, like, well, yeah, the Midichlorians yeah, so don't go anywhere. So what we actually get from them, I don't think are worth whatever. Just a barometer. And then the, uh, the the virgin birth, also not oh necessary. The whole prophecy is not necessary. Like it's just I like, hate the prophecy. I don't mind the prophecy as much as the virgin birth aspect. It's like, what, is, yep, what sure. is this? Prophecy is vague and can be whatever. But yeah, virgin birth is just, it's plain weird. But the little. Jesus thing, it's like, oh man, like okay. Yeah, it's very it's very heavy handed and no. I don't think it's necessary. I think it would be very interesting if they just said, um, yeah, his father Probably. died long yeah. long time long ago. Time I know you I died know when you. he was a little when he was a baby or something like Josh, that. I know you don't like I know you don't like the phrase lazy writing. So I'm just gonna say I think it's bad writing. I just think it's bad <laughs> writing. I think we have because we already have we have the element one big like, idea too many and when they're when they're sharing a meal, you're right. We don't need the Metaclorian. When they're sharing a meal, he's like, "I'm the only human who can pod race," and he says, "Wow, you must have reflexes like a Jedi. If you could do that and catches Jar Jar's dog, it's like great." And then he sees the kind of reflexes they could have just done a couple of cuts to Qui Gon watching Anakin. If they the pod race had maybe been a little more impressive in terms of like reaction time and everything, and it's like, oh, we didn't even talk about the pod race. Yeah, no, I, I just, you know, I, I agree. I think there's is any the prophecy number of... just the real world bleeding into this, the story of this being a prequel, and we know this character and everything. Just bad writing. 
Yeah, he could have just been like, I have never seen a kid with more potential in my life. We have to train him. And then that could, there doesn't need to be a prophecy. Because well, it's also my- inconsequential to the story. Because they keep talking about the prophecy, but like the, like if you take out the prophecy, it's the same story with the same consequence. Well, I think, though, the prophecy is intended to be the justification for why the Jedi ultimately relent and allow Anakin to be trained. Yes, I, I agree with that. I will say I've found a good food for thought. The, the prophecy thing, in, in analogous way to uh, some of the political stuff is food for thought for other things, you know. But at the same time, it, even by 1999, I feel like chosen one prophecies are played out. Kind of, Done. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then that same Matrix did it again, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, so so that's something interesting too. I remember thinking this in 1999 when I was watching it. the The climax of this movie, their whole plan at the end battle, is exactly the same as Independence Day. It's like they knock out the droid control ship and it knocks out all the droids. And I get that George Lucas is trying to set the stage for the necessity of the clones and how like they can think independently and they don't have that sort of weakness but it's so similar and it was in such close proximity i mean at least in my mind as a 14 year old having seen a few summers earlier independence day i gotta wonder do you think i know that george lucas started writing this in 94 but do you think that he saw independence day and was influenced i mean maybe but i also think that if we're talking about jesus prophecies and samurai movies and westerns i think he's just trying to i guess just convergent evolution yeah yeah i was just gonna say i, I don't think george lucas is too high concept with like mcguffins you know <laughs> i think he's like i think with him it's more about the world so like with him it's like everything's been done to death saving the princess into that and so with the i think it's just kind of like coincidental and for him it's like mm. well they're robots so just take out the, their brain and then they all can't move that, right. that like yeah. i don't think he put much thought into it you know? I don't even. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think it was just like a hey, this is an obstacle. How it's best one fourth it of what's going on in the climax, anyway. Yeah, too. right. Well, though, though, but everything is sort of in support of that. It's like the Jedi are Not really. Stalling. I mean, they, they have to get I'm, the Viceroy, and they, they get they capture the Viceroy, oh, right. which is the entire where they got a gun to his head. That they've won. You're right. And then right. this rogue uh, fighter decides to just blow up a ship and just kill everybody on board anyway for no. For no, yeah, uh, for no I, reason. I, I, fighters were just kind of keeping the other fighters at bay. If it wasn't a nine-year-old child, he might be like culpable for like a war crime by that point. Oh, also uh, the, uh, the whole thing of like Jar Jar doing everything by accident, Anakin doing everything by accident. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like mm-hmm. it's well, the same. Sort what of... drives me nuts about the Anakin stuff is that if you remove the dialogue, it's totally fine. Yeah, because he's a good. Like pilot. if you remove him saying like. Whoops! Whoops! Uh oh! And you know, like all that fun trick. Yeah, like all that stuff. Like if you take that stuff out, which Hal, I know you did. Literally every fan edit from the Phantom edit onward has done that. But yes, which is super interesting. It's like the way that you, not just in this movie, but in all three of the movies, the way that you are able to quote unquote fix certain things just proves that the material is there. There's a yes, absolutely. There's a more effective version of these movies living within within each one of these movies. And it doesn't take that much to bring it out, which I think is the most frustrating thing for me as a viewer and as a Star Wars fan 
like there are these things that are kind of incidental that really have a dragging effect on the quality or my subjective enjoyment of the movie. I think George Lucas sort of does what C.S. Lewis does, which is he needs to make sure that he says all the things. And in saying all the things, we end up hearing all the things like I don't I don't think. I think that's why we end up with some of the heavy handed stuff that we don't need. that doesn't necessarily add. I know that we talked, Josh, we talked about this a while ago. I want to say it was, gosh, I want to say it was, um, we were talking about a new hope and we were talking about something that like, it was a little bit of a plot hole and we were like, wait a minute, why did they even say this line? This line doesn't need to be in here. It just sets up the plot hole. I'm sorry. I can't remember exactly what it is now. I probably shouldn't have even brought it up, but there was something that we had talked about and it's like, yeah, you didn't, you didn't have to say the thing. No, the thing about um, uh, hold your fire. There's no life. Yes. Circuit. Yes. That like, was why it. even why even say that it's a silly idea. It's like you just like shot a zillion million times. Like just shoot one more time. Like, why are and, you holding and, fire? And no droids are a right. thing. Well, so, someone someone, uh, you know, takes a lifeboat away from the naval destroyer. They're, they're going to see it. I, I don't know. It's just like a way to explain why they're letting it go or something. But that's just but that's just it is like you could just you could have also just said like several escape pods were fired maybe in malfunction but they made it to the surface we should check it out just just because cut that scene of the two guys talking just yeah there are a couple of ways to address it and you end up he ends up trying to explain a little too much because like the empire knows droids are a thing there's no reason to believe that the plans aren't yeah, there's necessary. a good arl knots parody yeah. where vader uh you know he says oh there, there were no life forms or whatever and he's like vader just goes on and on grilling them about exactly that like you know you what is wrong with you guys yeah, I think it's a valid question, given the time and place. I am very displeased with this. The Phantom Menace starts, starts the movie doing that, too, because I think that's some of the first lines of dialogue. They're like, permission to board. And like, hi, uh, Captain, we're asking permission to board your ship. And he's like, yes, as you know, this trademark embargo is perfectly legal. Yeah. You can tell it. Like, I like that line this, this time, no. looking back on it as an adult. Because, it, it, I mean, it, it's very realistic. You know, a, a foreign dignitary or whatever yeah. who's doing all this kind of stuff. Somebody would just about literally say exactly that. I don't really? have a problem with the opening of the movie. I do love that um, that Obi-Wan's first line is, I have a bad feeling about this. I remember in the theater yeah, that that... Yeah, that guy cheer. There's his anxiety again a little bit there, too. I mean, about, An- about Anakin, foreshadowed. Oh, yeah, that reminds me of another thing. And that Qui-Gon, I think, in, I think right after that, he mentions the living force. Mm-hmm. He does. It's because Anakin, it's because um, Obi-Wan says, but Yoda, Master Yoda said to be mindful of the future. Mindful. And he says, but not at the expense of the present. Be mindful of the living force, my young Padawan. Yeah, it's interesting because these are ideas like a lot of the stuff in this movie, the seeds of it, the origins of it are really in the very early rough drafts of Star Wars. Like you can trace not just the names, but even like this concept of like, you know, different kinds of the force There's like the living force and all that. A lot of that is is really spelled out very explicitly in the rough drafts. And I think, you know, it's interesting, like a lot of people are like, you know, where's this politics stuff or what's this? This is a bad idea. That's a bad idea. Or what's this doing there? It's like a lot of it was there from the beginning. It was in his head in the 70s. Um, Just to wrap up the midichlorians thing in a bow. Hal, I agree with you. Like, I thought that it must have been going somewhere. That's the only reason I could think of in my mind to justify demystifying the force with some biological quantifiable like scientific explanation so i was like okay well that's gonna factor into the plot like either that's how they identify who the jedi or the force sensitives are to eradicate them later 
or like eventually I think what it is, and it actually also pays off the virgin birth thing, this idea that Sidious created Anakin by influencing the midichlorians. Mm-hmm. Which I'm glad that they dropped and didn't do. But yeah, that would that would be something for the build too, if that was there. But then ultimately, as you say, it just goes nowhere. And it's like, yeah. why, why, why is that in there? Yeah, um, now it's just we can figure out who's force sensitive with a blood test. Yeah, I mean... There's a real stretch, Chris, I think I mentioned this in our fan film episode, like there's a real stretch where you could view it as like just something that the Jedi think is an accurate measure of one's force potential, but it could be it could be incidental. Like my thing is that when an institution or like a belief system becomes institutionalized, it like has to become rigid and like measure things and stuff like yeah. that. And like, you know, maybe this is their misguided way of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like maybe this is their misguided way of like trying to, you know, really wrap their arms around this whole force thing so that they can be the authority on it. That's a huge stretch. So I really hurt my back on that one, Chris. But um, yeah, I kind of like, are there places they could have gone with it? I don't know if there's anything they could have done that like would make me feel good about it necessarily. But I don't feel like, okay, you tried a thing and it didn't work for me. It just, it doesn't need to be there. It just, it's a shortcut to... So this is this is the problem. One of the problems I ran into with the sequels when you when you have and as much as I love Rogue One, they do it and unnecessarily in order to escape the um in in the U wing they do it to escape the planet after it's been hit by the by the Death Star. They jump into hyperspace from inside the atmosphere, mm-hmm. and you didn't you didn't need to do that. Like there's a gravity well there. Like your hyperspace drives don't work there, and like you're the ones who set up these rules. But now they're being broken and it's not and they do the same thing with like hyperspace jumping in in again, as much as I enjoyed Last Jedi, the hyperspace jumping like, no, you're not able to track through hyperspace. What are we, what are we doing? And so I, I kind of run into that same problem with the Metachlorians is like, OK, well, you in yeah, my just, opinion, you you wrote yourself into the corner a little bit. Can you write yourself out? No. OK, well, here we are now. See, I don't mind shit like that, but. No, that's and that's fair. And it doesn't it doesn't bother me enough that I don't enjoy Rogue One. It just feels like this is stuff you could have done differently. So why'd you do it this way if you didn't have something in mind? Like you said, like if we'd gotten to something different with the Metachlorians and I just went, Ugh, I didn't like it. Okay, that's yeah. fine that I didn't like it. Was it was established in the movies themselves, you know, when when things like that happen where it's substantively a, a change of program i guess it's just one of those things where the midichlorians were there to on a surface level for the obvious reason to just show the characters how special anakin was but as you guys were saying before that like there was a possibility that the emperor actually created anakin but they don't go too much into that a little bit but i think it's like that's the I think that's the only reason that I could think of is that maybe he thought down the line that that's where it was going to go. And then he just kind of like veered away from it as he got closer to it. If that makes sense. Well, the other thing, though, too, is that now that we know these tantalizing glimpses into George Lucas's plans, his concepts for his his sequel trilogy, like whatever's going on at this like microbiotic level was a big part of the story. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so I you know, a part of me is actually sad that we'll never see what those movies would have been because whatever they sure. would have been, they would have been totally bonkers. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, as long as we're six movies in here, like, I want this guy to get his full thought out. And like you said, Hal, this isn't the kind of movie, The Phantom Menace, 
is not the kind of movie that you expect from like a big studio franchise. It seems like very idiosyncratic, very not, um, you know, traditional. It does have something to say for better or worse. Yeah, for yeah. better or worse. And like, I feel like we've seen six of these already. So if you're going to make three more, I would like to, as bonkers as it may be, I want you to pay off the midichlorians. You brought them into this. Maybe you never should have brought them mm -hmm. into this, but you did. <laughs> Maybe right. I wanna... The midichlorians are a stutter and you can, uh, you can make a case for editing it out or just watching the whole thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. Well said. If, <laughs> um, you know, I am, I'm, yeah, I just, I think if you're going to do the thing, just do the thing. It also sucks because, you know, like you said, John, like we've talked about, there's this idea present in the original Star Wars that anyone could be a Jedi. You just have to believe it. You have to work at it. Right. Exactly. And everyone has a potential to be some. Yeah. And I think by reducing it to this level of little critters that are living in your cells, like when you've reduced it to like a quality of somebody's blood. It, I mean, or... basically, it's like you lose so much more than you gain from that. They do sort of a stab, like, you know, like if, if the force is strong in someone's family or family line, like in Return of the Jedi or I suppose, I suppose even the original Star Wars father to son. I mean, like you can fudge I that mean, away. It's like the, saying like Bruce Lee's son will also have the potential. Right, it's not a super like, specific. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, whatever quality still implies you, it's genetic, it. doesn't it? Sort of. I agree. I don't, I still don't like it even so, but. Well, it, yeah, to defense. take the Bruce Lee example, it's like, you know, Bruce Lee's son can be just as good as Bruce Lee maybe, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like people who don't have the same body types or backgrounds as Bruce point. Lee can do, can't do like Kung Fu. It's just That's like everyone point. can do Kung Fu. We could all do Kung Fu if we just devoted our whole lives to the practice of comfort. But they would probably say, you know, too, like, you know, everybody does have midichlorians. It's necessary for life. Uh, just it may not it may not take you up to the point where you can do cool telekinetic things to use to police the galaxy. Yeah, but that's still saying, but, though, that it's something immutable. It's something that you're yeah. either born with or you're not. And, yeah. like, that's just kind of a bummer, and it just seems unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just unnecessary. It seems... The opposite of something aspirational and something inspirational. It just seems like, oh, you're either born special or you're not. Which is like mm -hmm. my other issue with the Chosen One prophecy. It's like, oh, yeah. you're special because you're born that way. Okay. Yeah. That was my problem with also like cool. Harry Potter, where it's just like, oh, yeah. like he's special because he's born that way. He didn't. No, like, but I can. I. For as many issues as I have with J.K. Rowling, I like the way that it's dissected in Harry Potter because. It's not just that he's special because the prophecy said he was special. The prophecy said that he would be made special and it didn't even have to be him. It could have been somebody else, but conclusions well, with Star Wars too. I mean, you know, it's not nailed down home. You could walk away from the movies and think, okay, maybe Luke was a chosen one, or I suppose really nowadays you say maybe it ended up being Ray, or maybe it was the prophecy kind of picks itself apart as the nine movies go on chronologically. And I actually don't mind the prophecy because in general, I am okay with prophecies if they are used to, I think there's a difference between bad writing and good writing when it comes to something like prophecy. Sure. And I like the idea of, because the way that I've looked at it, when it said that Anakin will bring balance to the force, he does. He's, yeah. I mean, we can break it down to no Luke does later. But it's it's, it's in retrospect, which is in keeping with real prophecy. I would, I right. would say at Anakin, least. Anakin does bring balance to the force. The Jedi just assume that means that for whatever reason, because the Jedi are dumb, I guess. They think that means the Sith will be eliminated. Well, all light, no dark is not balanced. So it makes sense that Anakin, like, yeah, 
Anakin wipes out the Jedi. Now you have a couple of Jedi and a couple of Sith. And now for the, if you, I understand that Palpatine is running things as, as the empire and, and it could be argued like the empire doesn't exist without Palpatine fine. But if you bring in somebody to be Palpatine and run the empire, the galaxy gets along without force users in a big way. So like, I think the argument can be made that like, yeah, he brings balance, just not in the way that's anticipated. And I'm okay with that. I like the idea of exploring prophecy in the way that like the prophecy is made. And this is, this is different in Star Wars and in Harry Potter, but in Harry Potter, it's, it's clear, like generally prophecy don't come true. And I like that idea of like, yeah, yeah. humans do this sort of shit all the time. We, we predict a thing and then we go, ah, well that didn't happen. Do we reschedule? Like, were we yeah. wrong about who Future it was? Future generations right? in the Star Wars world would uh, have their little, uh, you know, Jedi scripture book or whatever and, and look up the, the chosen one prophecy, the little footnotes, say like, and as we all know, of course, this unambiguously meant that this was going to, how it was going to be all along. Right. And I like yeah. the idea of him being the chosen one in that, like, cosmically, he wasn't the chosen one. It, that Qui-Gon decided he was the chosen one. There may one. be no such thing. Yeah. And just, there may be, and they're right. And, and these movies, like they're, they're, I mean, Yoda, Yoda gives us that little line, you know, a prophecy that misread could have been, and that gives us all the window yep. room we need that, to be able dude, to exactly, let it pick itself apart. Exactly. Bring back the balance, Ray, as I did. Like it, maybe the chosen, it, it demythologizes itself as you go through the movies. Right. I like my problem was with the Metaclorians because that really does say you're born special or not. The chosen one prophecy doesn't yeah. necessarily say that. It just makes us believe the that. You can put under a microscope. You know, right. and I can count, I yeah. count the Metaclorians and go force is strong with you because you have this number of, of light uh, well, positive, not bad. That's the problem I have with that is this idea because like, and this is admittedly you're talking about episodes uh, four five and six versus episode one, if you're going to go through chronologically, but in four, five, and six, the force exists between all things. And I like that it's more nebulous. I like the mystery of it. I like that. We don't always know. Like it's surprising that some people might be more force sensitive and it makes sense kind of in this world that it's genetic, but now it's not just like, oh, you're the, you're a Skywalker. So you're strong with force it, on your foot. Metachlorians. So I, 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 I hate how binary that is i think that's what i hate i hate that it's binary and it's it's just a you know it's just left hanging and so when you look back at it when nothing came of it it's like uh, you know there's nothing yeah it did drive me nuts though how and the entire prequel trilogy they're like you're supposed to bring balance and like you said there's like ten thousand jedi and it's like and at the end there's two jedi and two sith and it's like that's balance but yet didn't George Lucas say in interviews that that's not what he meant? He meant for the like the Jedi to win. That was yeah. I think the movie the the, the story okay. sets up that like uh, balance is when there are no Sith. Like balance is when there's just just the light. It's not like you know oh half food and half crack. You know it's yeah. But like but but what why why haven't they looked up the word balance and he specifically out he has specifically said in the past the Jedi are that, like, balance and light this is the balance. The, the problem with gray Jedi from a Lucas standpoint is Lucas has specifically said that you can't open the door to the darkness because it's the slippery slope argument. I vehemently disagree with that. And I don't think that's balanced. I think one of the problems with the Jedi is that when they say that the Sith see things in absolutes, it's like, yo, it, 
you looked in a mirror. Mm-hmm. You looked like, at your own sentence there. But, like, right. Well, but that's kind of the tolerance paradox, though, isn't it? A little bit. It's like, you know, you don't tolerate intolerance. Therefore, you are intolerant. You are intolerant. So Obi-Wan really is kind of in the right position there of not tolerating the intolerance. Like, but that's right. all I, I don't, But I think there's an element of that when you're dealing with the Sith period. But like, that's dealing with the Sith. That's not dealing with the quote unquote yeah. the dark side, right? Because there's anger there. And I think there's an element of like, you know, again, it, it not just it stigmatizing feeling in general, in general, because like really a lot of the Jedi religion is based around stoicism and stoicism is not about yeah. balance. It's just not. Right. Would you, would you uh, maybe, would you be okay with kind of roughly equivocating Obi-Wan's perspective on the Jedi with George Lucas's himself overall? In the sense of like, you know, yeah, we, we can interpret and, and talk about this stuff, but Jordan, you know, himself is like, no, the Jedi were good. And, and I, I would. Yeah. Luke, I think that's Luke, a good Luke way in Last it. Jedi kind of maybe embodies some of those criticisms of it. Like, you know, well, they were supposed to be flawed or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 balance, all these, all these stuffy, no attachments, balance things. Like, you know, it's, it's in the books that, I think that's the that they were based on. It, it's not supposed to be framed as a bad thing here. And so Obi-Wan's a real company man. And I, I think he, I think he does see him being a company man as a flaw, and I think he, I think he is trying to show that the Jedi are out of touch. When was it a flaw? Place. When did it? When did it? When narratively would, would you say that, that out of touch? The Jedi being out of touch in the prequels, everything goes down. Yeah. Or Obi Wan in particular? Oh no, not no, 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 no. When no, he failed to Anakin from from falling to the dark side. Everything goes bad because of the Jedi, and uh, like even when you think think of like Order sixty six, like they just didn't see it coming, and it's like they should have. And uh, if they were paying attention or cognizant of their uh, surroundings and not denying everything because of their dogma, which going back, now we're kind of on a tangent, but also going back to one of the reasons why I love Luke so much and the original trilogy was that it was his attachment to his friends and his family that kind of allowed him to succeed. And it's like, it kind of goes against the idea of what the Jedi dogma was, you know? I have one final question for everybody. What's something you think works about this movie or what's your favorite thing about the movie? And if you could change one thing about the movie and just one thing, what would you change? One of the things that I did love that we didn't really talk too much about, I mean, we, I mean John Williams never really misses, but um, we were talking about Duel of the Fates before, but Anakin's theme, which is on the soundtrack, is like one of my favorite Star Wars songs of all time. <laughs> and I have it on my classical music list. And this is really nice sort of, beautiful both optimistic and slightly tragic sort of song besides the music Liam Neeson is Qui-Gon Jinn Duel of the Fates all that stuff is my favorite I kind of like what you were talking about how with the old Hollywoodness even though it's 1999 but I guess it's old hey. now but like actual sets and stuff like that like watching it again now today I was like there's a lot to like about the Phantom Menace it just doesn't hit all of the marks in my opinion so what would I change? I would just think I would have it choose more or less one tone and have it stick to that. That's what I would basically change. Like like whatever it is that you want to do, if you want to be all politics, if you want to be all slapstick, or if you want to be all swashbuckling adventure, just choose kind of one of them and lean into it instead of trying to do three, four, or five different things at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, as far as what works well, I mean, looking back on it, this viewing anyway, like I kind of already talked about the political food for thought and the, the reflection on kind of what I was thinking of as kind of, you know, Batman versus, you know, maintain balance, kind of that 
kind of what that deleted scene in Last Jedi was kind of getting at with Luke and Ray, where he is saying, you know, hey, the Jedi texts would say, don't go in there and stop this terrible thing that's about to happen. Just maintain balance and being critical of it. You know, that found that kind of an interesting headspace to be, you know, to kind of grapple with. And the movie just doesn't, like this, this movie doesn't have a Poe Dameron character who's going to just relentlessly tell you what what's going on exactly and suck all the air out of the room. You get to really kind of just sit in it and think about whatever you brought in with you. I like that. And as far as if I could change one thing, there's a little snippet of a deleted scene that I would like to put back in when they're preparing for the pod race. I want the full extended version of the, the creature farting in Jar Jar's face. And <laughs> I, I want to quote OriginalTrilogy.com user Chase Adams um, when he says, in the case of the EOP, there's a distinct sense of mystery surrounding the theatrical cut of the fart. We're calmly watching Jar Jar toiling away at the pod when suddenly he is bombarded by an overpowering odor. We're surprised by this as we had never suspected such a thing to occur beforehand. In the extended cut of the fart, we see the EOP from the very beginning. We watch with suspense as he snorts in agony, waiting for something to happen. We know more than Jar Jar at this point and are the only ones aware of this approaching storm. So I ask you, which is more effective? <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't dream of changing a thing. We've lost Josh. Uh, yeah, yeah. Josh, Josh has gone um, bye-bye, you gone. What have you got left, Chris? <sighs> One thing I would change. It's a consistent thing that just it just bugs the hell out of me. I would change. I would change the aliens so that they're more alien and less again yellow perily familiar tropey to interrupt you and anybody else who feels that way and even really just anybody in general google uh magnolia fan he has two fan edits of you know episode one and two from from like you know i don't know way back in the day like 2003 okay. or something like that he never did one for episode three i don't know what happened to him but um <laughs> they that that's the best one that overdubs the nemoidians and and the gungans and gives them subtitles and different things like that no that's that's, that's i appreciate just that saying. that's great to know no, 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 no. I appreciate that because I think that's, I think aliens in general are really difficult to do because we're humans. And so it's easy to assign human motives and things to aliens. It's one of the things I think the expanse does really well is it's an alien intelligence. And so there's a lot we don't understand. I think, but I do think that George Lucas does aliens better in the original trilogy. So I, so I appreciate that, that suggestion. You said my Magnolia fan, is that what you said? Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay, cool. Thank you. Um, that's one thing that I would change. Um, is make them more alien and less recognizable. Something that I liked, you know, I gotta, I had the realization, but I hadn't quite articulated it probably like a second before you said it out loud, Al, I think I liked and wanted to see more of the political intrigue. I wanted to see that really play out because I hadn't really seen much of that in, in Star Wars, but I think it's interesting, especially, and part of this is just me as I get older. I like seeing that unfold and I like the idea of someone like, and this sort of happens in the second movie where Obi-Wan really struggles. He really struggles in, um, attack of the clones to navigate all these things that are happening in the shadows. He is not, that's, that's not his thing, right? He's not a, a secret spy man. Um, but he's forced into that role. I like the idea of the Jedi realizing that the things are out of control and they don't have the handle on this that they thought they did trying to keep up with the politics of it and being it out, being out, outmaneuvered. It's a thing that I like are those machinations. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like them to have doubled down on that a little bit. Yeah. 
I agree with that. I think I I think the thing that works the best is really Qui Gon and Duel of the Fates. I think you made me realize that, John. You know, Duel of the Fates, the music, the choreography, the the tension, those little like nuances of performance that you noted before. It's like it really is worth the price of admission on its own. It's it's a piece de resistance. <laughs> Though, you know, something again, like you said, Chris. You know, what was for a long time was really lambasted as this movie's fatal flaw. The politics and the, the taxation of trade routes is sort of lampooned in the um, the opening crawl. I think that is core to what this movie is trying to do. And I think it is really provocative and really, you know, radical in a lot of ways. And I think it would have taken, you know, 5% more little refinement to really make it clear so I would say that what works is the ideas that are on display here. If I could change one thing, I think it would be the humor. I think I would make the humor less. Um, I mean, I would really just get rid of the fart joke and some of the, you know, cartoony stuff, because I feel like it's just it's very dissonant. Like, not to say you can't have, you know, a range of tones or moments of lighthearted silliness. It's just there's just something about. I mean, again, like I said before, like I think you need a really deft hand to incorporate all of these varying tones and styles and make it still seem like a cohesive whole. And I don't know that this movie threads that needle as well as it. Yeah. There's one thing that's I think that's kind of unique about this movie is like whatever we're talking about with like showing and telling and vice versa and stuff being on the surface. Like I, I wouldn't necessarily call this movie vapid. I think oh, there's it's not a, vapid. It's, it's, it's the it's opposite. Not there's, 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 there's a lot, use, but... there's a lot there. I'm not saying you're saying that at all, but yeah. this is just something that I'm th I just came to my head while you were speaking about it. I think it's one of those things where it's like the, the analogy of like making like a, a marble statue yet to keep chiseling away. I just mm. think this movie needs to be chiseled more. There's more to be chiseled off, and he just kind of left it on the statue. Dialogue, the dialogue. Well, there's a lot. I think there's yeah. just like a lot where, like, like whether it's fart jokes or yeah. this or that. There's like there's a, there's a lot that like if sure. you just got got rid of this, got rid of that. Like the the political stuff is there. If you spent five percent more, like you said, to refine it, like there's just like it's there. It's just buried underneath a lot of other stuff. You know. Well, might I recommend Hal Nine Thousand's fan edit? Cloak of Deception. Here we go. What's it called? Cloak of Deception, right? Cloak of Deception. Yeah. I think it goes a long way to revealing the chiseled David in the marble that that is actually here. Well, and, and of course, even then, it's uh, it's downstream of a, you know, 24-year kind of textual history of people endeavoring to do just that. But yeah. it's got a commentary track, too, if you don't feel like you heard enough of me already. <laughs> no, which is which is very informative. That's that's half the reason why I invited you to come on that podcast because I I enjoyed listening to your commentary tracks. So Heard much, six so. hours of me and wanted more. Okay, but yeah, I I I need I wasn't satisfied. How um, anyway though? I do feel like you know desert island kind of thing. You know, I would feel good about having my own fan edit that ostensibly I'm making so that I have a version of it that is closest possible that you know what I would want to have it be like. And have the, the novelization as well. So you do get all the content and even more than what was in Phantom Menace anyway. It's a good novelization. Did you know Count Dooku? 400 years old. What? I did not know that. Well, in the novelization, uh, it says that Qui-Gon's instructor was 400 years old. 
So I, wow. I have to assume that that means. Uh, yeah. Of course, yeah. of course, because we would never change a continuity point like right. that, right? It says that. Right. It says speaking, that in the book. Speaking yeah. of which, I did a quick little wiki on Qui-Gon just to see like how they came up with the character or whatever. And uh, they stated something about his age that I remember from the expanded universe that they changed. When the movie came out up until Disney bought Lucasfilm, Qui-Gon was supposed to be 60 years old. And then now after it got retconned and now he's 48 years old. And it's like, hey, why did it make, why did it make that arbitrary change? <laughs> it's just like, like it was just, I don't know. I just thought it was totally weird. I guess it just it doesn't make sense. Otherwise, John, it just doesn't make sense. You're right. What was I thinking? What was I because thinking? humans age quickly in Star Wars. I guess they just thought that he should reflect Liam Neeson's like actual age, so they just changed it to like Liam Neeson's like. Yeah, age. that's that's, that's the thing that'll stop me from suspending my disbelief. That right yeah. there, that that'll do it. Yeah. As I always say, Hal, the twin sons of Tatooine age you twice as fast. Yes. Um, <laughs> it makes a lot always. of sense. If you spend significant time on Tatooine, then you are just cursed. Yeah. Anyone have any closing thoughts before I wrap it up here? Yeah. No, actually, I do. Really quickly, I I kind of hit on this earlier. This was fun. I'm really glad I did it. I, this feels the the last time I did something like this was going back and rewatching A New Hope completely all the way through undistracted for the first time. And I don't know how long and realizing like just how much magic was there. And I didn't feel exactly the same way, but like it did bring back a lot of nostalgia for me. I enjoyed it more than I have in years. And, uh, and it was a fun exercise to go in to just watch it, just watch it undistracted. And, and it was a uh, it was fun. So thanks for the opportunity. Like that was something that I don't know I would have done on my own. The last time I watched it, as I mentioned, was for a play test. So I was like taking notes on stuff. It was like a working, a working viewing instead of just watching. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was more fun than I anticipated. Yeah. I, uh, watching it again, like it just kind of brought back like personal feelings of nostalgia of seeing it in the theater. And I was like, it kind of left me on a note where it's like, what, whatever I said about the movie and his critiques, like I kind of left on a more positive note of just like, oh yeah, like this is a this is a solid movie. Like, and and I would imagine if I were seven years old, it would have been the best movie ever made. But I'm not. <laughs> I was pretty close, and I felt that way. Yeah, so, exactly, exactly. Guess, so that that realization kind of made me happy. Yeah, I I agree with the two of you that watching it again this time, it just the whole thing as is, and not thinking about anything other than just. Here I am watching this film. I enjoyed it more than I expected that I would. And I did expect to enjoy it. My last closing thought, I would just suggest perhaps dedicating a future podcast episode to maybe just the, the marketing and the ancillary material itself around this movie. I think you'd have enough to talk about. I didn't even get into any, it. any of that. Hell, that's a really good idea, but I'm really mad. I really thought you were going to go with an entire episode dedicated to the novelization. I really thought you were going to get one last hit in there. Um, but but I I think that's a really good idea. Actually, the both of those Pepsi can. I still associate can, Taco Bell. Like let, me, let me. Okay, here's my closing thought. Um, <laughs> I I lived close by at the time to uh, a conglomerate location that had Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut under one roof, and that oh, place wow. was fucking lit in summer in 1999. It was a sensory overload. Can imagine it was a sight to behold. It doesn't exist yeah. anymore. But. Yeah, you know, one of the things I do associate with this movie is like the bargain bins of like Jar Jar merchandise yeah. and stuff. Like, you know, like, I mean, it's really interesting. Like, I, um, I mean, like you guys, I have a real fondness for this movie. And, you know, watching it almost 25 years later, 
without any pretense, without any, you know, expectation of it. It was a really, you know, it's a fun, solid, lovely, good time. And I'm glad that it exists. Um, maybe they'll make a sequel. <laughs> maybe they'll make more Star Wars movies. Who knows? On that note, I want to thank my guests, John, Chris, and HAL 9000. HAL 9000 can be found on the OriginalTrilogy.com message board, where um, you can track down links to some of the fan edits that we have been referring to. If you like what you heard, you can find transcripts of this episode and all our other episodes at TrashComPod.com. And we are TrashComPod across all social media. And we will see you on the next one. 